85% of daily fantasy sports players lose. Don't be surprised, it's rigged. You're playing against thousands of lineups and experts with more tools and time. Stat Hero is the first ever daily fantasy sports book that gives the player the advantage. Here's how it works Stat Hero shows you their lineups and dares you to beat them. It's you versus the house in a head to head matchup. You name your stakes and winner takes all. So go to stathero.com slash capspace. You can sign up for free. And right now you get 300% back on your first play. That's stathero.com slash capspace. Don't forget that slash capspace URL to let them know that you came from us. All right, welcome on Western Conference 15 and 60, our third 15 and 60 since the trade deadline. Starting to see a, a little bit more of what some of these players on new teams can do some of the buyout guys uh, as well so we're going to do this a, a little bit differently than normal just to change up because it's nice we're going to go in order of the standings you know to ensure that all of you stick around until the the very end actually i mean the wolves may have uh, the most interesting although uh, wait uh, they are not uh, they don't actually oh no they do have the worst record they are they're a half game behind still the rocket so you can sit, or, sit around until the end to, to hear our thoughts on the wolves sale but why don't we get started here talking about the jazz and the suns conveniently enough those two teams played on wednesday we're a little late in discussing that game but i, I think with these the top two seeds in the west a lot of interesting aspects uh, if they were to match up in the playoffs here going forward a lot of interesting things that we learned about these teams from these games so why don't we begin with the fundamentals on the utah jazz danny absolutely the jazz are 40 and 13 uh strong six and two since the last 15 and 60 they're still first in net rating actually up to a plus 11.6 per 100 possessions second in offense second in defense projected to win 55 games which is first in the west and they are going to make the playoffs jordan Clarkson has missed the last two games with a right ankle sprain and impressively the jazz have only lost twice since march 19th uh they lost the dallas game that we did for the nba cast and then that awesome ot game against the suns which we're going to talk about um they then handled the blazers and the kings after that and before we get into the game the other note for the jazz is that they still have the easiest remaining strength to schedule uh 44.7 is their average opponent winning percentage for the rest of the year yeah, the Suns, for their part, since we'll talk about their game against the Jazz, 37 and 15, 6 and 1 since the last 15 and 60, 7.3 net rating, third in the NBA, seventh on offense, fifth on defense, projecting for 50 wins, should be second in the conference. And this game against the Jazz, a 117 113 Suns win in overtime back on Wednesday. We're going to spend some time on that, even though it wasn't that recent, to get some takeaways here. What were some of the primary things that stuck out to you uh, about this one, Danny? Well, I think it, it was a reminder of some of the like the offensive versatility I think that that Phoenix can bring I thought that Chris Paul definitely had his moments Devin Booker didn't have an efficient game but he did have a couple of a couple of big buckets and that I you know that gives me gives me some comfort for the Suns they also have a deep rotation you know they they really had four guys in camp the five starters in Cam Johnson because of Mikael Bridges foul trouble played a large portion of the minutes so I thought that went well. Uh, DeAndre Ayton on the offensive glass, I thought was really important. But also, even though his overall line didn't look good, there were some really nice moments for Mike Conley. Yeah, you know, 5 of 16 for Conley, 11 points, probably one of his more inefficient games of the season. Only had four assists. But I, I thought overall... He just was able to get into the lane and get good looks. He, at one point in overtime, he put DeAndre Ayton on the yo-yo. Uh, he had a play where he, in the late clock, 
blew by his man and threw just this pinpoint alley-oop to Rudy Gobert and this is really the first time in his career that he's had a lot of space to work with and he's shown off some quickness he had a great bucket at the end of the third quarter against Torrey Craig where he got to a spot and then just flipped it up quickly with his right hand it looked like Craig had him dead to rights and he dropped it in at the end so I I do think maybe Conley and we'll see how it goes against some of the teams in the playoffs but Phoenix certainly a good defensive team although their best defender as you mentioned Bridges was in foul trouble all, all night but he maybe makes you feel a little bit better about Utah's ability to attack against switches which is what Phoenix was largely doing they're switching one through four in this game there's a lot of one-on-one play for the Jazz and in fact Utah uh, this is one of the things that maybe gives you some pause about the Jazz is they only had 14 assists on 46 field goals in this game 11 to 44 shooting from three 25 percent doesn't help because most of their threes are, are assisted although not as many as maybe some people think uh with Conley and Mitchell getting them up quick but I did think that just if you're looking for a bright spot in this loss for the Jazz in addition to their defense being pretty decent that would be it that I think Conley just looked like he was going to be able to beat his man and get in the lane and make some plays if needed and give them a second option there in addition to Mitchell one something we noticed in the NBA cast game we did had we did earlier in the week was that Conley and Gobert have, have are getting a nice chemistry and Conley has a good understanding of Gobert's catch radius and as you were talking about with the spacing one of those options can be Conley just getting a shot for himself whether it's a floater or getting to the basket or whatever else but also knowing the knowing the angles to pass he's he has a really good sense of kind of pacing and angles and all of that and so I think there are there are avenues there worth pursuing uh something else that was I, I think an important dynamic of this game was that I would say it was that both teams were worse in transition defense than that both either team was great in transition offense though it was obviously both well Booker he is starting last year really with Ricky Rubio and he's kept this up with Chris Paul I think that's been a little bit of an adjustment for Chris Paul to get a faster pace going but yeah Devin Booker did a lot of his damage just getting right to the basket in transition and he just 9 to 10 from the free throw line and he was 13 and 25 on twos just missed all of his threes 35 points 13 and 31 from the field did have six turnovers and only three assists so it wasn't his best game but uh, although I did think he was getting a lot of very good looks and just was missing them I think he was getting the looks that he wanted against uh, this jazz defense a lot of the time but yeah I mean he probably had I want to say seven or eight like quick transition attacks for either layups or fouls and that's where a lot of his fouls came from and the jazz this highlights a problem for the jazz usually you say it's oh it's on the perimeter for isolation scores and booker obviously is good at that but if rudy gobert or Derek favors is not back they don't really have you know if boyan bogdanovich is your four royce o'neill who's six four if you have devin booker coming right at you you're those guys can't like contest him at the rim and force a miss like they can't get off the ground and do that they're not going to deter that quick transition attack from booker so the jazz transition defense when i saw him in person against the warriors earlier they also had a lot of problems in transition defense and some of this is unfair to the jazz because it seems like every time we see them are one of their rare losses right like the, i saw them against the warriors saw me we did the Mavs, the nba cast watch this game and because generally when they blow some team out by 30 also saw them against sacramento a little bit where they dominated them at late in the 
fourth quarter to blow open what had been a close game but so maybe that it's unfair to the jazz that we're harping on a, a lot of their problems but also they're gonna be playing good teams in the playoffs as well yeah, I, I think that's true. And I mean, the Jazz are leading the league in, in net rating. There are a lot of these. I, I talked, I, I did a podcast with Dan Devine um, on, we recorded it on Friday. And like, we talked about this idea of basically that this Jazz season was kind of like built in a lab for people who think they're underappreciated to go even more insane where they're having this unbelievably great season. But their highest profile games, either the success is discounted because they were playing against, you know, a team that was missing a good player or because they, they ended up losing that game. It's one of the few. Um, Something else that I think is is going to be worth keeping an eye on is kind of the kind of some of the fringier elements of the Suns rotation. They are a very deep team, and Torrey Craig, you know, he he made two of his three shots, but just like you and I talk about all all the time, it can be a challenge if another team just identifies you as a player that they're not going to guard, and you think about all the all the times that he didn't get it. And now I think Craig is not horrendous in those circumstances, so I think that you know maybe teams won't won't leave him as aggressively as Utah did in, on on Wednesday. But that can create problems because you're just basically then you're just relying on him to hit those shots. You, it's going to take make everything else harder. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how that goes. Aiton was playing well, and Dario Saric might be another option there at the four who will give you some more offense and shooting and isn't going to get left. But he's played mostly as a small ball center this season, and he was not able to really... The last few games, they've had that magic of him having like a 20 net rating in 400 minutes. It hasn't continued as negative seven in this game and bridges obviously was limited to 20 minutes so he he might bite into craig's time although craig is really playing more as a four they had to move cam johnson down to the three so it'll be interesting to see what how much craig plays in the playoffs and we saw in denver that when he's hitting shots that he can be a really useful piece but if he has that random five out of seven game but he did kind of gum up the works uh particularly late third early fourth uh, when he was out there in that stint the third quarter uh, after the jazz only scored 40 points in the first uh, and trailed by 11 in the first half they trailed by 11 at halftime was an awesome duel between donovan mitchell and devin booker that was really the best quarter for both of those players and mitchell really got going 41 points for him 16 to 35 4 of 12 from three which was much better than the rest of the team shot frankly three assists five fouls how did you think that he played in this one i thought he played better than in the mavericks game that we did where i thought mitchell's he 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 settled too much in that one i thought he was a little bit more aggressive especially in that third quarter kind of got to his spots didn't get all the way to the basket as much in that quarter but was hitting the mid-ranger it looked better had a couple of good assists too so i thought he was i thought he was fine i thought that you know you have to kind of be okay with the volume experience you know 41 points on thirty. well that's a good point though because there is a correlation statistically between when he takes more shots the jazz lose is that his fault or is it just he has to take more shots yeah i mean I, I think it's just that the other stuff isn't working as much so he puts it puts it more on himself but it can it does depend on the game i think there are some that are in each box yeah i, I would agree with you on that and it's that i you can complain about him shooting too much but other than bogdanovich conley was 5 of 16 and clarkson was 4 of 12 so there are other shot creators it's not like they were doing a ton in, in this one either 
Let's see, what else did I have here? Uh, Boyan Bogdanovich has been starting to look a little bit better lately. In the Kings game, I thought he, he had some nice plays as well. But uh, doing a little bit more off the dribble in this one, he was usually matched up against someone like Cam Johnson and, and was able to get into the lane, make a few plays, go into that right hand. He was 8 out of 17 for 20 points, which in this game was a, a rather efficient performance. I guess we could talk about the end of the game here too and they really put it in chris paul's hand chris paul probably should have mentioned him before this he was the best player on the floor in this game he was 29 points nine assists 12 of 24 from the field three of seven from three most of those are in the first half from three uh but he was getting to that elbow jumper setting things up they started with their spain pick and roll then they went to just a, more of a straight regular pick and roll and Rudy Gobert was laying back a little bit. Mark Jackson was somewhat critical of that. The Jazz have done okay against CP at at times. Other times he's cooked them uh, with the Gobert out there, like game five in 2018 when he had 41 points to close them out. But it, it was a virtuoso CP performance down the end. Yeah, I thought that he was absolutely excellent and um, was the best player overall on the floor. Uh, something else I think, I mean, that that was, I mean, the overtime, the Jazz didn't score for the first three minutes of overtime. They got there, uh, by the way, on a Donovan Mitchell three. They were down three. Mitchell hit a three with 10 seconds to go, I believe. And then the... Okay. Yeah, so so that that was interesting. They run the time, the Suns run the time down up three. Booker drives, lefty floater just barely goes in and out. And Aiton, who had been awesome on the offensive glass, he had seven offensive rebounds. Uh, Andy was also really good it kind of when Gobert would switch on to Chris Paul then he was able to usually get some kind of a tip at, at the rim but Aiton just kind of sauntered back down or, or up three with 15 seconds to go as the Jazz are pushing it up Booker didn't really get back very well either and that's how Mitchell was able to get that uh I mean it was it was still a difficult floating three but a better look from three than you want to give up in that situation and then the 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 Suns did the standard thing of you know get your best isolation score to isolate and shoot basically as as the clock expires but did you think that that you know like that overall tack is the right one to take in terms of max- maximizing or minimizing your chances to lose is probably the better way to put it but you can also you know if that's what you know you're going to do throw a little bit more force behind getting the exact matchup you want and like that's something that came up I, I well it sort of came up in the uh Spurs Memphis game or Spurs Mavs game we'll talk about later yeah, I thought so. Mitchell played pretty good D on him, but he, uh, Booker, you obviously you want to run the time down there. If you do that early, then you risk the other side double teaming, and then you have to get off the ball, and now the ball is not in your best decision maker's hands, and you may end up shooting earlier than you want to. So that's it, it's a, a tough call there of whether you want to do that or not. I, I think if you go run that guy that second guy in with the small player because usually if someone small is guarding a player then that player has at least some decision making ability of his own you know maybe even have chris paul go screen for devin booker with five seconds left and just have him slip it and just add a little bit more something there I and mean, you do run the slight more risk of a turnover when he's not just dribbling the air out of the ball to go into an iso and, and i thought he also could have tried to use his size a, a little bit more as well like in the, in the ot they got him the ball pretty close to the nail against Mitchell, and that was something that Mitchell just doesn't have the size to deal with. A uh, few other notes on the overtime. The Suns won the tip, and Devin Booker got a transition layup about three seconds after that. <laughs> it was like, it was was, like a dead sprint pathetic. right to the basket, yeah. Um, I was 
a little surprised that Monty Williams never went back to Mikhail Bridges. Yes, he had five fouls, but I mean, he's one of the best perimeter defenders in the NBA. He's not that much worse of a shooter than Cam Johnson, but I guess they felt like their defense was good enough and they did win the game, so you can't well, complain and, too and hard about that. The Jazz didn't score for the first, what, like three minutes of overtime? Yeah, yeah, that, that was a problem also. Uh, I didn't really care for Quinn Snyder's tactics at the very end of the game. They're down four. They get a rebound with 36 seconds left and they had two timeouts they did not take one to set up the two for one and they ended up never getting uh, the two for one uh they ended up then getting a very quick two from conley to get back within two but they never ended up getting a shot up with a chance to tie then after well, well uh, i mean there was a yeah. disagreement on whether they got a sh- shot up with a chance to tie i guess yeah uh, yeah yeah well, so so we'll get to that i think chris paul missed a free throw so they're uh up three or down three the jazz are but they had already put in favors and gobert to rebound so they didn't want to like push it up necessarily after that I don't know what if you're thinking that he's gonna miss and Chris Paul is 93% free throw shooters so I, I believe it was Booker but it. the argument's the same oh yeah yeah it was Booker Paul hit the two to end it yes thank you but Booker still a pretty good free throw shooter but yeah I mean if you think he's gonna miss it it doesn't seem like they're gonna be going that hard for the offensive rebound in that situation and you just got a tying three in a situation where you were able to push the ball up and with the way that teams are able to foul now, and particularly because you just hit a tying three, you know they're probably going to try and foul. I would have thought it'd be better to just get that rebound and try and push it up in that situation. And then Mitchell gets fouled. He's got two free throws coming after they called timeout. They inbounded it to Mitchell. I think the idea there was let's try and inbound it so he can shoot right away and they'll either commit a three-shot foul or we'll be able to get the shot off. But Torrey Craig, I mean, I thought they absolutely made the right call the refs did with craig wrapping him up even though mitchell didn't put the ball down he was still facing away from the basket craig wrapped him up before mitchell began his shooting motion it was dicey but i thought they made the right call making a non-shooting foul there i I thought it was i thought it was the right call as well i understand why mitchell was frustrated because it was a pretty quick sequence but it also appeared pretty clear to me that the foul had already occurred so Yes, and that is why the uh, the Jazz were not able to get a get an opportunity, you know, to, to tie the game um, because then it was two free throws and Mitchell and Mitchell. I, missed I had the one first other one. beef too. Sure. Yeah. So so he oh. misses the first one and but he still was instructed to make the second one. Remember, they're down three here. So Snyder goes with Favors and Gobert again, I guess, to like get an offense offensive rebound. But he's an eighty five percent free throw shooter trying to make it. To me. If you're trying to make it, you should be much more concerned about what happens on the following inbounds when you're out of timeouts now. I think they were out of timeouts. They were. They'd already used to. Right. So why not go with a more mobile group to deny the ball inbounds? Instead, Favors and Gobert just both start running back because that's what they're told to do as centers. They don't deny the ball inbounds and they have to follow, follow Chris Paul and they that's it. You're done. Your only yeah. chance there if you're going to make that is to try to deny the ball inbounds and make or at least fix it so someone other than the 90 four percent free throw shooter on the other team uh, gets the shot but anyway i i thought this was a hard-fought game i'm not sure who i would pick in a matchup between these two teams right now i'm kind of want to lean phoenix a little bit i just think they have slightly more dynamic scoring at the end of games and they're a little bit more versatile defensively and i think they're a little uh, more versatile it, yeah. offensively which i think is more yeah yeah e- even though the jazz obviously statistically have been better uh, in both uh 
but yeah, I mean, I think that series would be a toss-up. If the Jazz had home court, I probably would end up picking them like in seven or something, which they probably would. But it, it does seem like even if these are the one and two seeds, they're both going to have a tough road to get to play each other in the playoffs. I've been working with Indochino since way back in 2015. They outfitted my wedding with a tuxedo and sport coats for my groomsmen. I've got a number of suits from them as well. There's nothing like that feeling of knowing that your clothes just fit perfectly and you're not going to get that at some store. You're not going to get that off the rack. Yeah, they say that they can customize it for you, but why should you start with something that's made for someone else and get them to try to make it fit you? Instead, Indochino makes stuff for you that fits perfectly whether it's custom fitted suits shirts casual wear and more it's all at surprisingly affordable prices their suits start at just 399 dollars with all customizations included each piece is made your exact measurements you can customize every detail the fabric the lapel the monogram they've got awesome statement linings as well whether you want to go into one of their many north american showrooms or book a virtual style consultation just go to indochino.com and you can get 50 dollars off any purchase of 399 dollars or more by using the code capspace at checkout easy to remember capspace which i put all the time around the program that's 50 dollars off a purchase of 399 dollars or more at indochino i-n-d-o-c-h-i-n-o indochino.com promo code capspace don't forget that capspace code to let them know you came from us it was about a year ago now that there was that massive shortage of toilet paper. Remember that? Even still, it, it seems like you can't get as much as you might want to at the store. And that shed some light for me on the idea that toilet paper is not very environmentally friendly either. Over 27,000 trees are cut down each day to make toilet paper. And that's why now I use Real. It's 100% bamboo toilet paper. Bamboo grows faster than trees. It doesn't need to be replanted. And it's just a more sustainable material uh, overall. It's three-ply, making it both soft and strong. Even the tape is plastic-free, as, of course, is the rest of their packaging. And every real purchase helps fund access to clean toilets for the 2.4 billion people who currently have to defecate outside. So it's good for you. It's good for the environment. It gets sent right to your house, which is awesome with free shipping. So you don't have to take up 95% of the room in your shopping cart just with toilet paper. No reason not to give it a try. Listeners of Dunked On get 10% off their first order with the promo code CAPSPACE. Easy to remember that because we talk about it all the time around the program. Visit realpaper.com, R-E-E-L, realpaper.com, and use that CAPSPACE code to get 10% off. Don't forget that CAPSPACE code to let them know that you came from us. So we can jump to the third seed currently in the Western Conference, and that is the LA Clippers. They are 36 and 18, 5 and 2 since the last 15 and 60. They are second in the NBA in net rating, plus 7.4. Number one in offense. They've moved up there, um, and they're 11th in defense, which is an improvement off of, of, of different points where they were projected as projected to also finish with the third best record, 48 wins, which is and that's using 538s. Though that's the Raptor model projection. Uh, so 48, just to kind of put it in full context, that is two games behind the Suns and one game ahead of the Nuggets. Um, so not it is it is very it is very fluid especially at this point um unfortunate injury news for the clippers that patrick beverly so he came back and then fractured the fourth metacarpal bone on his left hand so he's going to be out at least three to four weeks and remember if you think about kind of the general timeline here four weeks isn't the start of the playoffs but we're getting close to the start of the playoffs so that means not only you know do they have to play without him now reggie jackson has really stepped up in beverly's stead previously but that's going 
to be important. And also the the risk, even though this is a bone thing and not, you know, like a muscle injury where it can linger, that he's not quite right for the playoffs. And we remember how important that has been at different moments in time, especially for the kind of the theory of the best five-man Clippers lineup. Yeah, now we did say that Beverly's bulky health is was a reason made to acquire Rondo. Also, did he end up playing tonight against Detroit? Yes, he did. So Rondo, um, he missed the next game. So Rondo had a big game against the Suns, um, but then missed their next game and then was questionable for the Detroit game, but he did play. Um, and he's been dealing with a sore right adductor, um, but played played and closed against, against the Detroit Pistons. So it, I think they have, you know, especially with, you know, Reggie Jackson stepping into this larger role, like they, they have enough to kind of make it work. And remember, Serge Ibaka is still out too, um, but it is going to be a challenge if some of these issues, just like we're going to talk about with a lot of other good teams, persist into the playoffs. Something else that Ty Lu has done, which I think is really interesting, is being kind of, you could call it staggering rest. So first of all, I support w- with where they are, like, you know, giving Kawhi, giving PG some rest if that if, if the medical staff think that's good. But so they rested Paul George against the Rockets. Pretty smart approach, considering the Rockets are not playing very well right now. And then sat Kawhi against the Pistons on Sunday. Now, it does make you less likely to win each of those games to do it. But if you think you have enough to make it happen, I think generally that, ma- if, if given the health part, let's say that's a constraint that you want to sit, you know, when you want to sit this player in this five-day stretch and you want to sit this player, to separate those out and do it against bad teams, I think is a smart approach. Yeah, uh, if you want to win games, uh, on the other hand, you might say everyone, they need to get on the same page with their chemistry and stuff as well. But this Beverly injury is really a bummer. I think he is so crucial to their ability to switch at all five positions defensively to go with a small unit with, I guess you would call Marcus Morris, the center in that group. And Rondo doesn't bring that level of switchability or taking charges or rebounding. But so can they go to that group but have Rondo out there? That's an interesting question. The other team is probably going to be small and try and switch as well, where Rondo maybe isn't as useful than if they're playing a conventional pick and roll defense. If you're going to now, if you have Zubats out there, then Rondo probably works a, a little bit better, maybe, than Beverly. But having that option, I still thought that the Clips' best five menus included Beverly and even if he comes back may not have the chemistry it's just it's a long time for him to have been out right now i mean i guess he'll get some more rest for that knee but we saw that he wasn't the same guy coming back during the playoffs last year with that calf issue and also i think it could just solidify him not being as big a part of the rotation potentially as well if they fall into things but ron has been good for them so far the plus minus numbers have been pretty solid with him out there they do have some other options in the backcourt with jackson playing well also but i i think that for this clippers team defense might end up being their biggest problem in the playoffs and beverly is their best option there want to talk a little bit about Kawhi leonard's game against denver and denver is up next so we can transition use this as a way to transition to them a little bit as well but the nuggets of course have acquired aaron gordon and the nuggets did win this game with the the clippers this is about a week ago but i I think with the nuggets having acquired aaron gordon kind of specifically for this let's guard Kawhi leonard role i wanted to check out it and see how he did against leonard and I thought it was relatively similar to what took place in 2019 when Gordon played for the Magic and Kawhi, of course, played for the Raptors, where 
court, I thought, largely forced him into reasonably difficult shots for humans, but that Kawhi, there were shots that Kawhi was comfortable taking and making. Uh, I did think Gordon a, a couple of times just got blown by and couldn't stay in front of Kawhi, which he has been a traffic cone a little bit more this year. That happened a little bit in the Boston game to him as well. So I, I'd say he's kind of been about what I expected so far defensively for Denver, where he's a, a body there that's not just going to get totally taken advantage of, but also not something you can just put on an island and say he's going to stop this guy in an ISO. Kawhi didn't have the best game, but I thought he got his looks overall and in particular he was able to get to three short jump hooks that he just missed that are usually very nice touch shots for him Kawhi actually has been the most efficient pick and roll player in the NBA high volume I think it was Zach Lowe who had that stat initially and he was able to get to some pretty decent looks but it didn't seem like they were able to take advantage of Jokic that much in pick and roll and Jokic actually made three plays on Kawhi at the rim where he either blocked him or, or forced a difficult pass out and that's the time we're on the Clippers, but we're kind of talking about the Nuggets now well, a, a I, little I, bit too. I, I want to mention, are you are you done with the quest stuff? Because I was going to mention one more thing before we moved on from the Clippers. Um, Yeah, the, the only thing I would say is I, I think a little bit more pick and roll. And I, I think pick and pop could be very interesting as well with Serge Ibaka, even if it's Serge Ibaka popping to two-point range. Uh, and we'll see whether the Nuggets will have to bring Jokic up to the level of the ball and force passing around. The Clippers are such a good three-point shooting team. I don't know if you want to do that necessarily. So uh, that's going to be a fascinating dance. Obviously, Jokic uh, is a big matchup problem for the Clippers as well. What was your last thing on the Clippers there? I just want to mention that Paul George has had 30-plus in all three of the, the Clippers' last games, including, and all three of those has been wins. The 33 over Phoenix in that 10-point win, I thought, was was in many ways the most impressive. He had some some really big threes in that one and had a couple of mid-rangers as well. So we'll, we'll kind of see, you know, what, what Paul George we get, whether it's, whether it's Pandemic P or something else in the in the playoffs but he has had this nice stretch and he said you know the, we've talked about the ridiculous efficiency of the Clippers offense it should, should not be lost on people that they're number one in cleaning the glass offensive rating this season uh, but we can give the stats on the on the Nuggets they are 34 and 19 on the season six and one since the last 15 and 60 they are fifth in the entire NBA net rating plus 5.7 fourth in offense 14th in defense um and then they're projected to finish fourth in the in the west 47 wins and they're going to make the playoffs an important piece of context which makes the nuggets recent success even more impressive is that jamal murray has missed the last four games due to a sore right knee and originally michael malone tried solving that with having monte morris be the be the starter but actually i i the broadcast said that morris asked to be to gum bench so sometimes that gets you know garbled a little bit but they put facundo Campazzo in that role and I thought that in the early going of their game against the Celtics on Sunday that part of it I thought looked pretty good you know kept the ball moving Jokic was doing Jokic things and then and but then they just the the bottom fell out at the beginning of the fourth quarter yeah this is one of those uh actually let's let's be good to these guys and it, let's talk about all the good things that, that we've seen from them and from Gordon first because this oh is I was gonna do the bad stuff I was gonna do the bad stuff and then end with the good stuff oh, but we can do either a, way you're such a pessimist no I I, I mean I, I just I, I feel bad because it seems like when I you know wasn't necessarily I watched that Nugget Celtics game not knowing what was going to happen in it, but obviously that was their one loss, and it was a loss in spectacular fashion. So, yeah, all right, I guess we'll just talk about that. 
Yeah, so I mean, I, the beginning part of that game, it it felt largely kind of true to form. I thought the, the starters versus starter minutes in the first quarter went pretty aggressively in favor of the Nuggets. They were getting good shots. Their defense looked good. Also, Boston was missing was missing some looks, but I thought that generally speaking, the Nuggets looked really good in those minutes. And then Boston stemmed the tide a little bit. I thought they looked they looked better in the second quarter. And then the third, you know, I thought it large it largely followed kind of a little bit of the same story. But then one of the, partially you know Jamal Jamal Murray being out but also partially just the talent that's available that second unit basically the not let's call them the non-Jokic unit just got absolutely demolished and said it basically kind of said the train off the tracks and then they were not able to put the train back on the tracks yeah so Nuggets were in control 79-65 and they're outscored from that point this is with 14 minutes left in the game mind you they're outscored from that point 40 to 8 and they really really missed Jamal Murray on that second unit they just didn't have anywhere to go Barton played it there a little bit Compazzo played there a little bit but Will Barton has just not been able to be the pick and roll scorer that he was maybe early in his Denver career of late. And Paul Millsap, Jermichael Green, a front court that I kind of liked together, they haven't really been playing JaVale McGee much. Those guys just were awful. None of them could hit a shot. And it was just, it got really ugly for them offensively. So they're down maybe eight or so. It might have even been six when Jokic comes back in at his usual time, about six minutes left in the fourth. And I want to say he only played four possessions. And it was really a shame because he's had this unbelievable season that this is kind of a throwback to the old Jokic, the one who gets frustrated really easily. Uh, he was completely distracted by the referees. He tried to post up Grant Williams a couple of times. I thought it was good that the Celtics went to Grant Williams on Jokic rather than Robert Williams. They kind of learned their lesson, I think, from the Embiid game. And Grant Williams is pretty strong. He did a good job not getting back down by Jokic. Jokic tried to draw one foul on him, feel contact, and just throw up some crap. He didn't get the call. Um, another time, he tried to like really back him down. And that one, he got a pretty good look. He just missed it. And But every single time uh, that that happened, he would complain to the referees, knock it back, and the Celtics got either a layup or a dunk. And then the one time during that stretch that Jokic did get back, he got a rebound under the rim and immediately threw it away to Jalen Brown, who passed it, or no, I'm sorry, Jason Tatum, who passed it to Robert Williams for a monster dunk. And that basically put the Celtics up by 10 or 12. But I thought it was fascinating that Mike Malone took Jokic out of the game at that point and never put him back in. He, down 10, he'd just come back in with four minutes left. It wasn't totally out of reach rest. He had the rest of the starters in. And I'm not sure whether that was Malone as a discipline or anything. Hey, you're not getting back on defense. I'm going to take you out. Or whether perhaps Jokic was just too upset in the huddle and that's why he took him out or maybe he said something but uh, Gary Washburn had a photo of this he's at the game of Jokic just sitting on the bench when most teams are doing their huddles now in the chairs on the baseline instead and Jokic just wasn't even involved in the huddle I'm not sure whether he was taken out of the game because he was acting like that or he's acting like that because he was taken out of the game but it was uh it really it, just a, a shame because he's largely kicked those habits uh, i did give him credit because 
he did not euro foul on the one time that he didn't get no back he on didn't defense. yeah that that's true and um, <laughs> that, was, that was the one positive and it's possible that some of that was the nuggets have a back-to-back they had to travel from denver to san francisco they're playing the warriors on monday it's a possibility that it relates to that but, but I, I would I don't be think shocked so. considering considering like how obvious uh his and how little t- was. and how little time was remaining in the game too like this isn't it wasn't a yeah. circumstance of like you're saving him 10 minutes of action or something something like that um but there is so much positive in denver especially over the last little while i mean oh i'm sorry we're out of time we gotta <laughs> no, okay, no, no, go ahead. denver uh so <laughs> since since the trade deadline seven and one with a plus 11 net rating that includes the loss today um though cooling the glass maybe filtered out some of it for garbage time because of it became a demolition despite being everything that it was um and Jokic and Gordon, when those two players have gone together, you know, you can't use the full proxy of Jokic, Gordon, and Murray because Murray has missed the last four games. But plus 17.2 net rating and 384 possessions together, that is insanely impressive. And while not every game in this the win streak was against the strongest opposition, they did an incredibly good job of playing whoever was whoever was in front of them. That included that win over the Clippers, which I think was the most impressive, at least to me, over that stretch. And uh, just briefly on Aaron Gordon, I'm sure we'll talk about him a lot later, but his usage has dropped from 25 four in the part of the season before before he got traded in Orlando to 17 with Denver before today's game and his efficiency is skyrocketed at 63% true shooting before Sunday including 71% on twos when you think about the spacing and the ways that Jokic has found Gordon and everything else it's not a huge surprise but it's also impressive that Gordon is being this efficient considering he's only taking he's only making 28 percent of his threes but it's a small sample and gordon's taking the lowest frequency of them that he has since his early years in orlando so we'll keep a much closer eye on gordon but i wanted to give that little like status report just before we move on yeah gordon was taking 5.5 point times per 36 minutes in orlando and actually making 38 percent of them this year although we've seen the small sample before as we did it a couple of years ago and then now he's only 3.3 uh, per 36 minutes but uh, has uh, been extremely efficient as a a nugget also i wanted to note that nikola Jokic already just in this truncated season which uh, now consists of 52 games amazingly Jokic has never played fewer than 73 games in his career which is impressive for this era uh but Jokic already has a career high in dunks by nine uh he had 15 last year and he already has 32 this year his previous career high had been 23 back in, in his second year that is that is a very clear indication of how much better a shape he has gotten himself into so it's been all over the news lately with the economy reopening that a lot of companies are looking to hire and the last thing that you need when you don't have enough staff is to take more time than you need hiring the people that you need to run your business that's why indeed is the hiring partner who helps make your life easier it's as easy as one two three you post screen and interview all on indeed you get your quality shortlist of candidates whose resumes on indeed match your job description and you get it faster you only pay for the candidates that meet your must-have qualifications you can schedule and complete video interviews in your indeed dashboard and you can immediately get quality candidates whose resumes fit your job description they also have skills tests that you can choose from more than 130 of on average these tools reduce hiring time by 27 percent and according to talent nest indeed delivers four times more hires not candidates anyone could be a candidate sometimes there are too many candidates you want hires indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined get started right now with a free 75 dollars sponsored job credit 
to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash capspace use remember slash capspace because we talked about all the time here on the program get a 75 dollar credit at indeed.com slash capspace that's indeed.com slash capspace offer valid through june 30th terms and conditions apply don't get that slash capspace url to let them know that you came from us I've been working with Masterclass now for probably four years, ever since Steph Curry's class on shooting and ball handling came out. And I still find more classes that I'm enjoying. My wife and I have actually been sitting down together and watching Gordon Ramsay's class and learning a ton about cooking technique that basically we're applying right away. More her than me, if we're being honest, because it is the NBA playoffs after all. I don't have a ton of time for cooking right now. But I'm just continually wowed by the quality of Masterclass just even when they're filming him doing the class they've got like four different cameras there they'll show you an overhead view above him of what he's doing in the pan or the bowl it's really just remarkable and really whatever you're interest is and however deep you want to go into it whether you want to just watch the videos whether you want to work through the downloadable materials as well and you can watch it on ios android we're casting it to our chromecast super easy the way to get started with them and get unlimited access to every master class and 15 percent off an annual membership is to go to masterclass.com slash capspace you remember because we talk about it all the time here on the program that's masterclass.com slash capspace for 15 percent off masterclass don't forget that slash capspace to let them know that you came from us we could jump to the team that the models currently project will face them in the first round of the playoffs, the Los Angeles Lakers. The Lakers are 33-20 and 20 and an important 3-3 three and three since the last 1560. Remember, they had been on a slide. Uh, Lakers are 8th in net rating, 20th in offense, and still 1st in defense. They've actually improved in terms of defensive rating since the last time we did this. Not not in ranking, but just that they're allowing fewer points. 538's model projects them to finish 5th, and they are going to make the playoffs. The injury news, I would say it's positive-ish for the Lakers. Um, there was a report from Woj that Davis, Anthony Davis is going to be reevaluated this coming week. It sounds like he'll be back in the next two weeks, 10 to 14 days as of Saturday. So we'll kind of see in around that range. And then LeBron is about three weeks away. He's about a week behind Anthony Davis. But then also Kyle Kuzma has a grade one calf strain. You're the guy. Uh, but he's not expected to miss much time. So we'll have to kind of keep an, keep an eye on that. And... Also on the injury front, Marcus Gasol missed Saturday's um, Saturday's blowout win over the Nets uh, due to left hamstring tightness, um, and a lot of guys stepped up in that one. It was a, a, a pretty surprising result. That was KD's first game back in the starting lineup. Um, but part of it was the Nets shot five of twenty-seven from three. But the Lakers also forced nineteen turnovers, um, and a a big run in the third quarter um, pushed. What looked like it was was and was going to maybe be a close game to a 15 point lead at the end of the third, and then they they kind of kept pushing that lead to to end it. And importantly, the Lakers won the starters versus starters minutes against the Nets when they started. Schroeder, KCP, Horton Tucker, who had 14 and 11, Markeith Morris, and Andre Drummond. Yeah, and there were uh, some ejections, another altercation involving Dennis Schroeder, but I think the Lakers were happy to make the trade uh, of Schroeder for Kyrie Irving in that one, even though didn't have a ton of shot creation behind him. But yeah, pretty ugly loss for the Nets. 
but uh, I mean the Lakers now five and six since LeBron went down I'm not sure if that counts that Hawks game or not which they lost when they played 11 minutes and Andre Drummond has been about what you would expect getting fouled a lot getting a lot of rebounds 14% offensive rebounds uh 54% true shooting has not been uh, particularly uh, efficient just looking at his play types uh, number one is post-ups and granted he only has 50 possessions plus assists uh, per synergy but posting up cuts which is basically just like dump offs around the rim and he hasn't been particularly efficient finishing around the basket either he, he hasn't been doing as much self-created stuff uh, as in cleveland and he's only had 13 possessions of either post-ups uh, or isos and turned it over on 20 percent of his possessions so he's kind of been andre drummond so far but he, he had uh, one of his better games against the nets uh, who are not known for their athleticism uh, and intensity on the interior in this current iteration yeah so i mean i think that having stabilized stabilized things gotten these gotten these wins it it does look better for the lakers they do have a back-to-back in new york and charlotte monday yeah. tuesday what's what's their schedule before uh, they're, we're talking about ad maybe in cutting back in the next two weeks yeah so i'll, so, I'll, just, I'll just give i'll just give you the next two weeks so yeah at new york at charlotte in a back-to-back then they come home and face boston and then the jazz twice um, not back to back, but have that have a couple days off, then have then go to Dallas for a set. So at Dallas, at Dallas, and then that's that's the two week mark from now. So maybe AD gets back back right around. And then the schedule actually lightens up immediately after that. So it could end up being you know for well, arguably fortuitous timing. I mean, you'd rather have AD for the good teams, but we'll see. Yeah, and I think it, I I would say it is fortuitous timing because I think once they get AD back, and obviously he's not going to play back to backs when he first comes back. He's going to get eased in. He probably won't if he starts he's going to play 20 minutes a game so expecting him to be a panacea immediately is probably unrealistic but the thing is that their defense has held up they still since lebron went down they still have the number one defense frank vogel deserves a ton of credit because this is a miserable offensive group uh, unless they're playing the brooklyn nets on national tv apparently but they've managed to stay in games and ugly things up now games against the mavs and the jazz I mean, I still would probably, and we'll see who's available for the Hornets because uh, they've had their own injury issues, but they're probably still underdogs in all those games you mentioned before AD comes back. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I guess it is. I mean, we don't know the full like rest balance yeah. on some of those, but yeah, uh, knowing knowing what we kind of have on, on hand, I think I think that's reasonable. Um, the Knicks will be on a back-to-back on Monday, whereas the Lakers will not, but there's travel and everything else. So Yeah, yeah and, I, and also I would add this, the Utah Jazz are going to be very motivated to beat the lakers and get them out of the four five bracket and down into that six seven range yeah that's a that's uh, a so really good, that's other. a really good point um so I, I i would imagine they're gonna be pretty aggressive about trying to win those games but I, now saying that they're underdog doesn't mean i'm predicting them to go oh and six obviously and they've shown that with their defense they can stay in some of these games so i you know they might go two and four or something over that stretch but again even even to get out of this at seven and ten would be much better than we were expecting when LeBron went down and and now again once AD comes back that's not going to solve anything either LeBron is clearly their most important guy anything else to, to talk about with this team no just just the the piece of info that 538's current projections I don't know how they're handling these absences they have the Lakers as being three games below the Nuggets and two games above the Mavericks so that could end up being challenging for a couple different purposes I mean there there will be jockey 
jockeying position for position. We know that, but most of the time teams have to be close in order for that jockeying to actually occur. Um, but we'll, so we'll have to keep an eye on it. And also remember that the Lakers, if the Clippers are the three, they're not particularly going to want to fall down to the six. I'm guessing. I'm guessing they would rather go, you know, Nuggets, Jazz, and then face Clippers. We'll, we'll have to see. Maybe you'd rather face them early, especially if Patrick Beverly is still on the men. But we can jump to the current sixth seed in the Western Conference, and that is the Portland Trailblazers. Um, these stats were compiled before their ass kicking at the hands of the Miami Heat was finalized. That's just the nature of how we record this. But as of that point, Blazers 31 and 21, 3 and 3 since the last 15 and 60, a slightly positive net rating plus 0.3, fifth in offense, 29th in defense, which is actually what they were the last time we did 1560. 538's model projects them to finish seventh in the West with 41 wins just behind the, just behind the Mavs, but they're probably going to make playoffs. I mean, 92% Raptor, 85% ELO. One other uh, note. Uh, um, yeah. Uh, Ennis Canner had a 30 rebound game versus Detroit on that on Saturday. He had 24 and 30 in in that one, and then they uh, that that was on Saturday, and then on Sunday they got their butts kicked by Miami to the tune of 107 to 98. So I guess it wasn't it was I think it was like 20 points or something earlier when I had seen it. Yeah, and Damian Lillard he's had some real stinkers: 12 points, three of 10 in 37 minutes, and five turnovers. And just looking at at what he's been doing lately he has had since march 21st they had that nice win in dallas then they got completely destroyed or i'm sorry they had this nice win at home against dallas and then they got completely destroyed the next game uh he has had over 30 points only twice in 11 games and for a guy who's averaging around 30 on the season that's not too amazing Uh, the free throw shooting uh, has not been as high and part of that i think uh, has been trying to work in norm powell as well but here here are his averages just for april which is the last six games 22 points 6.6 assists 37 percent from three as uh, the blazers uh, have gone two and four in the month uh, after they had a a nice hot stretch but at least the numbers with their new guard trio uh, are pretty good yeah so before sunday's game the Blazers were outscoring opponents by 17.7 points per hundred possessions when Lillard, McCollum, and Powell were all playing together, fueled by a 125 offensive rating that is completely ridiculous, unsustainable, but also a sign that that's been really good. And impressively, it's been a pretty, before Sunday's game, been a pretty even split between Nurkic and Kanner at center with that trio uh, because Nurkic has missed some time. Um, plus 17 net rating with Nurkic and plus 16 with Kanner. And then there was, they actually were outscoring teams by 25 per 100 in a very small sample with Carmelo at center. Um, but there there was some noise and we saw some regression to the mean here in the Miami loss um, that part of the reason the defense had looked so good was that opponents were just shooting 32% from three and generally as as listeners hopefully know defenses don't do as much to control the success rate of opponent three-point shots it's more about the frequency and everything else so it looked like there was going to be some you know there was going to be some regression to the mean on that front and then Miami this all of course not was not all in those minutes but Miami shot 12 of 29 from three so that helped kind of tip the scale back the other way what have we seen from norm powell in his time with the blazers he is give you his 
stats uh, in the eight games uh, that he's played 38 percent from three on 5.3 attempts still not getting any rebounds I and mean, that's a little bit of a concern that none of your three perimeter players are, are averaging more than four rebounds in the stint but hey if you got Ennis Canner to get 30 rebounds that's not as much uh, of a concern 32 minutes a game uh, for Powell so they're definitely playing him plenty during this period reducing the role uh, of Derek Jones Jr. quite a bit something worth keeping an eye on I mean we're obviously in small sample size territory here um Powell is getting to the line more than he did on the Raptors which is a which is definitely a good thing but he is only making 45 percent of his two so far now that I, again I think it's more sample size than anything but you know yeah below- three, three of 15 uh, on floaters but uh also 59 percent at the rim which is not a, as good as you might hope yeah, he's been in the he's been in the like low to mid sixties the last couple of years for the Raptors. So I'm and remember they're playing a traditional center a lot. Like there there is some potential some potential stuff there. But I mean I think Powell it's it's kind of gone in fits and starts because remember he had that thirty two point blow up in the in the game against the Clippers which they did lose. Um, but he's also had a couple of stinkers two a ten against the against the Pistons in that game on Saturday that Kanner had a billion rebounds. So I, I mean I objected to the Powell trade on kind of the theory of the case um this is the interesting idea of you know like basically just like doubling down on offense but you know I, I would say they've been very successful overall in those minutes albeit in a limited sample we'll have to see how it goes yeah uh Gary Trent Jr. had 44 points on 17 and 19 shooting in, in a limited sample for the Raptors the other day as well but we won't see what to make of the, I mean, we won't really know until we see what kind of contracts Trent and Powell get. Well, and, and where obviously. and where they sign. I mean, I would expect that Powell will be back in in Portland because that would be catastrophic. You know, if if yeah. he if he opts out and and just straight up leaves. But yeah, but actually, I think a part of this for Toronto too that we probably haven't talked about enough was that Trent has a pretty small cap hold compared to where Powell wouldn't have. He, they get about ten million or so extra in cap room, assuming that Trent meets the starter criteria, which I think he will, and that's a for a team that's trying to do a little bit more this offseason maybe do more of a makeover that could end up being useful then they can just use Trent's bird rights to exceed the salary cap his cap hold should be about 4.7 million with the starter criteria anything else uh, on these guys here I, I mean they're just maybe Lillard just due to the injury that he had that's why he hasn't been as active lately he's actually cj is actually averaging more shots per game than he is as well neither of those guys are shooting it great from three over the last 10 you know kind of 35 percent and but you mentioned that the numbers with the the three guards uh, on the floor are really good offensively and so i I don't want to put too much into it but this is probably for those who care about these things this this recent stretch has been a it's not been a feather in dame's cap for uh, the mvp award necessarily just one thing to alert listeners to is that right before uh so not this coming week this coming week is a little bit light but the week after that is going to potentially be definitive for the blazers kind of and where they end up in the western conference hierarchy they have a back-to-back hosting the clippers and the nuggets and then they play three of four games against the grizzlies and the Grizzlies have been better. We'll talk about them. We'll talk about them pretty soon. Um, but you know, if that if they go two and one or three and zero oh in that stretch, that probably firms up that they're the the six or the seven. And I th- they still think they're going to end up above that. I don't think they're going to fall into the morass. Remember, the Blazers are ten game ten games over five hundred right now. And or sorry, they're nine after the loss to the loss to Miami. Um, and Memphis, you know, Memphis is one game over, and they're the they're currently the best record of that. So I don't think they're going to fall there. But just kind of where it stands, and it, it'll be it'll be kind of interesting with the Blazers 
Blazers and the Mavs and all that kind of stuff. So but we can jump to the just mentioned Dallas Mavericks. The Mavericks are 29 and 23 on the season, strong 6 and 2 since the last 15 and 60. 11th in net rating plus 1.7, fueled by their 10th offense, though number 10 offense is way worse than last year. Uh, 20th in defense, 538 projects them to finish ahead of the Blazers with 42 wins, which would be 6th in the West, and over a 95% chance in both models that they're going to make the playoffs. The improvement for the Mavericks over this last few weeks has really been on the defensive end. Their full season defensive rating has improved by more than a point, and they've jumped from 20 6th to 20th, which is nice. On the injury front, JJ Redick will debut soon, possibly Monday. Uh, Moxie Kleba has been in and out of the lineup with a sore lower right leg. We'll have to keep an eye on that. Um, And then Willie Cauley-Stein is supposed to return soon, but he did not play in their loss to the San Antonio Spurs. Yeah, that loss... Is San Antonio next, by the way? Could we? Um, we can do we standings? can do them next. There's a team in between, but yeah. I think we just tackle them together. Yeah, uh, I, I guess the, you mentioned Reddick. We talked about this first. Where he fits in the rotation is an interesting question. I think while Kleba is out, then there's just more spots uh, in the guard rotation, and they could move Richardson to the three, bump uh, Nicolo Melli out of the rotation or move Tim Hardaway Jr. to the three as well. But they got a a lot of guards who need to play, whether it's Hardaway who really struggled tonight, but he's been solid all season. Trey Burke obviously is not going to play at all. Do they reduce Jalen Brunson's minutes? You wouldn't think so necessarily. And maybe Richardson's minutes would get reduced. They're going to try out Redick to be sure, but there isn't really an obvious spot for him to slot in, uh, especially since they've been playing pretty well. But you mentioned six and two. They've beaten a ton of really good teams, including the Jazz that we did for the NBA cast last week. We're doing Wolves Nets, by the way, tomorrow, which would be fun. But they've lost two to their in-state rivals, neither of whom have been playing well. Yeah, I believe that the losses to the, the, the Rockets and the Spurs, both of those wins were those teams' only wins this month so far, which is not exactly the best sign uh, for the Mavericks. And I think one of the, the early story in, in their loss to the, to the Spurs on Sunday was Kristaps Porzingis dropping 20 and 10 in the first half. I thought that he he was more aggressive. I thought that he he did a, a, a very nice job overall. You couldn't have really expected that much more from him. Porzingis also had two blocks. But I would say that overall, the Mavericks defense really left something to be desired. Yeah, they just couldn't stop DeMar DeRozan in this game. And while Porzingis got going early, a lot of that in the pick and pop game where they're doubling Doncic, they spent a lot of time doubling Doncic out of the pick and roll. I'm not sure how well that worked in the end. But DeMar DeRozan, he and Luke had a great battle down the end. In the second half, DeRozan was ridiculously at 27. And it really was three actions one was running pick and roll at Luca. This is really the first time that teams have gone after Luca, and it's actually really worked. I, I thought DeRozan really kind of had his way with Luca to some degree, and it had a key three-point play on him that fouled Porzingis out and just was able to get downhill, use that kind of herky-jerky game, create a little bit of space, shoot over Luca. Some guys try to just go through Luca, which he's pretty strong, so that doesn't work as well. But this is, teams have tried to go after Luca plenty, and sometimes they'll score on him obviously he's not a lockdown guy but this is the first time where i've seen that where they're like man you got to send some help you can't get into this matchup he's really he has no chance against him so that that was surprising to see that it would be DeRozan who'd be the the one to finally put luca into difficulty like that but he, he can just be tricky for some guys to deal with 
Well, and speaking of putting them to difficulty, I thought another incredibly important player in this game was DeJounte Murray. And Murray, he, you know, his his defensive disruption, we've talked about a lot on the show. He Murray did have four steals in this one, but I thought it was really in transition offense that he made his biggest impact. Murray got, he took eight shots in the, in the, in the, in the lane, made six of those, only got to the line once, but that, that he was getting, you know, good shots for himself and teammates as the, and I thought that was really important. Yeah. And he hit a couple of threes as well. He was two of four from downtown to keep the defense honest actually shooting some pretty aggressive ones the spurs never take a lot of threes although frankly the way that they were scoring in this game they didn't need to it ended up with a 122 offensive rating only eight out of 21 from downtown and so murray was great you mentioned pushing the pace he interestingly he and Doncic started off guarding each other and i think they felt they just didn't want to put luca on Derek white maybe they felt that Derek white was the larger threat maybe because murray was on luca they just didn't want to get into a cross match where they're trying to stay in front of murray because he is good in transition like you said but murray got going early again against luca just more in a standard pick and roll and that's probably actually a better place to attack luca than in isolation because make him get over a screen and really work so then eventually when luca got one foul they kept trying to go at him to draw another one and they eventually just switched him off uh, onto Derek white who wasn't as much of a threat white had a little bit of time late in the first to run the show when murray went out of the game but he clearly is has fallen with some of his struggles this year obviously has fallen off into being really more of a third option in that starting group i do like that they really just have their starting group now which they haven't had necessarily all the time i think you can make arguments for when patty mills should be closing some games as well but they went with that same group and and white guarded luca a lot of the time too had a a couple of nice deflections forced turnovers luca i was really disappointed in him again like he and Jokic both seemed to really get wrapped up in this whole no respect from the ref things like with Jokic, zach lowe was saying oh man people in the denver organization are like going crazy that Jokic doesn't get enough respect from the refs and so luca this wasn't even really a ref thing he just lost it a he was trying to post up and just tried to throw a cross-court pass with one hand it just slipped out of his hand uh when he was being guarded by lonnie walker and lonnie walker yeah he's really fast but he basically just jogged behind the play it became a three on two because luca just put his head down and jogged even slower than lonnie walker which led to poor nicolo melli getting dunked on ridiculously on his head by lonnie walker with the that nuclear powered left calf of walker but it was all luca just turning it over and it's just it's kind of sad that your first reaction when you turn it over is to hang your head and feel sad instead of like feeling determination of like i'm gonna make up for it now Um, so that ended up mattering that play they lost by two they lost by two and by the way, little aside, wonderful day for posters. I mean, in this one, the other one that was lost, Dorian Finney-Smith had a really nice dunk. Of course, both of those pale in comparison to the Miles Bridges absolute, just phenomenal dunk, dunk of the year candidate in the morning, which was pretty fun. And then Paul George actually had a really nice one in the in the last game of the day. Um, but that's that's an aside. So I think for 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 the Mavericks, it's going to be something to watch. Is just kind of where where they go from here. I mean, it kind of seems like it's going to be either the the six or the seven, and that 
potentially could be in a rematch with the Clippers. So maybe maybe in certain ways they'd prefer to be. I mean, this, a, a Sun series would be fascinating for a bunch of different reasons. But I think they just kind of, you know, they've been getting their house in order. They won five straight earlier in kind of the span between these 15 and 60s. But those two losses, it's a little bit concerning. Yeah, and I mean, if you're looking at the Clippers being the three, I don't think that the Mavs really, I mean, would you rather, if you, I, I guess, the, I, I got more on this game. So I guess we can, we can talk about that later. We're going to, we're going to have plenty of time to talk about all of these machinations of like who sure. wants to play whom in the, the rest of the playoff race. The end of this game was, awesome it was it, it was first the Mavs fell down when Luca was out of the game they had a, a couple of minutes without either Luca or Porzingis in which they rarely will then Porzingis came back but he didn't do much in the second half ended up falling out a, on a, a pretty asinine foul for an and one on DeRozan when Luca was guarding him I think that was actually kind of part of the problem too is that Porzingis isn't really mobile enough to provide that Gobert style of help on a quick shifty guard to where he can get across the lane quickly enough when he's 2.9 to really affect things uh at least in this iteration of Porzingis but the Mavs roar back at one point they trailed 112 104 and then they started going to Luca backing down his man in the post actually it was 113 104 after that three-point play by DeRozan I'm sorry one of the two three-point plays that he had in the last four minutes yep. of the game so then they started going to Luca in the post which is something that I think is going to become a larger and larger part of his game the Spurs had gone with either Murray or White on him because they thought he was going to be in pick and roll he's going to ISO they want to get into his body a little bit and Luca's like well I'm 6'8 240 and you're not so he, he's backs down and he immediately sets up a Porzingis three when they double team then he backs down again just turns left shoulder into the lane for a really short floater and at that point Greg Popovich called time out because they weren't executing the scheme that he wanted down in the post and what that scheme was was the double team was going to come from the baseline so the job of the guy in the post was to force him towards the baseline and that didn't work when he got to that ready hook shot and also when he was able to set up Porzingis because the idea is you force him towards the baseline double team and now there's pressure on him he doesn't really have good passing angles so they finally execute that scheme and Luca somehow even though he's forced towards the baseline throws this seeing eye pass to Dorian Finney-Smith for a layup they score again then the next time down they're like all right we got to just let's try putting Kelton Johnson on Kelton Johnson is just as strong as Luca uh Kelton Johnson commits a foul in the lane he gets it gets a couple of free throws trying to just shove Luca too hard I mean and Luca was moving Kelvin Johnson who is Kelton Johnson who is a really strong dude so Luca was this Luca post-ups they ran it four times in a row absolutely unstoppable and that's how the Mavs got back into it yeah and then and then Luca hits a floater on the uh, on the possession after DeMar DeRozan misses a corner three and so then San Antonio you know situation we've, we've talked about a couple different times they have the ball they call timeout and you know get in get an offensive lineup on there get Jakob Pertl out of the game though they, they couldn't intentionally foul him yeah, at that the, point they because- did go to the the uh Jakob Pertl as I as I called it on Twitter and he, he made one out of two but the one was the second one that was off the backboard unintentionally and it was so not pop, exactly inspiring yeah pop ended up having to call timeout to get him out of there and yeah so the last play there was 
19 seconds left and the Spurs went with their offensive group with Rudy Gay and Patty Mills and DeRozan went to a pick and roll at Luka which they had been so successful with pretty early on and Dorian Finney-Smith did a good job getting through the screen he was in front of him DeRozan went to a really difficult two-step step back to his right leg or, or to his right side I should say from the left wing and he made it with 0.5 left and there's a lot of people questioning why they didn't double and Ricardo said yes we were supposed to I don't know what happened there my guess of what happened was that maybe they said all right if Luca gets switched on to him we're gonna double but when Finney Smith got through the screen they felt like maybe Luca was the closest guy and maybe he felt well I shouldn't double we already have a good enough defender on him but it was also very clear that Finney Smith was concerned about fouling the jump shooter which you think about a lot with DeRozan especially the way he was kicking his leg out and so he kind of pulled back a little bit on his contest and that's the you know we're protecting shooters these days DeRozan is legendary for his pump fake for drawing fouls Finney Smith I'm sure was like all right if don't like wait until he's in the air to jump and you kind of use that as a constraint play to get a better look at if you're DeRozan so maybe they should have doubled uh, and there is a point in time at which you want to double DeRozan shot it a little earlier than you normally would about 2.5 left so it, it went through a 0.5 left so it probably to just double because hey there's no time to even get a pass off like we hadn't reached really that point yet and it was and a tough be, shot and that can be really hard to yeah. execute you know like i've yeah. been an advocate for teams doing that but i think you have to develop a whole strategy around that approach yeah um, and, I, I mean and, what you would have to do is you double team and then you also have the next guy come over and take away that first pass so they got to throw a skip pass and then hope that there wouldn't be an, enough time for that um couple other small observations on this game Dorian Finney-Smith was awesome on the glass he repeatedly snuck in past the the likes of Kelton Johnson or DeJounte Murray to get big offensive rebounds including the one that set up Luca's tying floater uh when he just I think went right past DeJounte Murray on that one Rudy Gay he's looking a little cooked this year he really going up against Melly who actually moved his feet pretty well again for the second consecutive game that we've seen him but uh wasn't really able to create separation and then he's playing as a four and a five just not really a good defensive player so he, he may be kind of nearing the end but also these old guys with so many games it's it's tough to tell in a more normal season they might be able to be more effective and uh, Lonnie Walker was critical in getting the Spurs pushed out to that nine point lead that they had and he obviously had that big dunk had a couple of other nice drives including one even to his left uh, although he still of course finished with his right hand on that play uh but uh it, he looked good other than greg popovich calling a timeout roughly 0.5 seconds after walker entered the game because he and eubank screwed up and both left Doncic on the ball and Doncic hit a three yeah, it, it was not exactly the best drew eubanks game um though some of that was the personnel that was on the floor i thought yeah. i thought the, i thought the purtle played pretty well overall the spurs continue to be good in his minutes but a couple of important offensive rebounds and i still like Pirtle's deterrence at the rim. Now, Dallas kind of structures their offense a little bit differently, but I still thought doing that out there. And, and yeah, Pirtle, the free throw form didn't look great. He did end up making two or three, but I still really like him. Yeah, the Spurs now are 25 and 26, two and six since the last 15 and 60, really have struggled since uh, the break. Negative uh, 0.5 net rating, 17th in the NBA, 19th on offense, 10th on defense. That's been part of what's slipped down for them. They project actually right now for the 11th. 32 wins uh, 538 projection does not like them that much only eight percent chance of the playoffs for raptor and seven percent for elo uh well and- I'll, I'll, 
Sorry, I'll give the part yeah. of the context there is that the Spurs have the second hardest remaining schedule in the league. If you look purely on, on opponent strength, that's I use Tankathon yeah. for that. Um, and they got a shitload of games, too. Right. Yeah, they, the Spurs play 21 games the remainder of the season, which is tied for the most in the NBA. Memphis also has 21 left to play. And... San Antonio, I mean, this this is kind of, it can work as sort of a bridge to Memphis is that like one of the important dynamics that has happened over the last couple weeks is sort of a, a, you could call it a reversal of fortune for Memphis and San Antonio. It toned down a little bit because San Antonio won on Sunday and Memphis lost. Um, But before today, the Spurs had lost five straight and 10 of their last 12. So they moved from clearly in the group above the mass at 500 to firmly in that group in the mass around 500. So the other important ripple effect of that for San, from San Antonio's purposes is that unless they have a huge push and one of those other teams, including the Mavericks who they beat on Sunday, if that happens, is that probably the realistic best case scenario at this point is, is the eight. And, you know, the eight is not the worst place to be. Still have a still have a structural advantage to make the playoffs but it's it's a harder road especially if anything less than that is the 9 the 10 the 11 which is their current projection so that's challenging also uh, Gorgie Jang has missed two straight due to the strained right shoulder and as is you know is something that you and I are always noticing is that there was the I think it was I was reading on on Rotor Worlds is that the the description that it cannot get worse is always something that that gives me the heebie-jeebie is like oh no we can't get hurt worse and sometimes it can but also he's going to be dealing with the seems like he's gonna be dealing with pain the rest of the season yeah shoulder doesn't bother me about that quite as much usually that that doesn't come under nearly as much stress as like a knee or or something like that so let's get to the grizz now did you give their stats already i did not um the Grizzlies after today are 26 and 25, 5 and 3 since the last 1560. Positive net rating now, uh, plus 0.9, which is 12th, 16th in offense, 7th in defense, and Raptor model projects they will win 36 games, which is 8th. 46% chance on Raptor, 76% on Elo. And remember that Elo is the one that is more how they've been playing recently, and the Grizzlies have been playing well recently, though they did lose on Sunday to the Indiana Pacers they uh, and they they lost in overtime to the Knicks but they had a, a really nice stretch before that and something that's just kind of crazy is that before Sunday um Memphis had only lost four games since March 19th so it's you know not, not quite a month but a little while and three of those four losses were to the Utah Jazz because the Grizzlies played the Jazz three times in six days and yeah I mean that's the type of thing that I would be more aggrieved about in a normal year and some of that was you know there were games that were canceled and rescheduled and all that type of stuff but that is a, a tough thing that I, I the Grizzlies are playing really well they just happened to run into the best team in the NBA and lost to them three times and there's there's no particular shame in that especially when two of the three losses were relatively close. Yeah, the Grizz injuries. D'Anthony Melton is now missed four straight with a sore left leg. What is this, hockey? What is that injury designation? Is that, that that can't be what it officially is. I think Kleba was out for a couple games with something like that, too. Yeah, I mean, is that his knee? Is it his quad? Is it his, hopefully not his calf? That, that was Brandon Clark, who actually returned from a calf injury in their loss to the Knicks. Uh, Justice Winslow still out with his thigh issue as well. The Grizz are definitely one of the least transparent teams when it comes to injury. But hey, uh, maybe Jaron Jackson will be back 
three months after they didn't say he would be but there was reporting that he would be potentially so uh yeah the Grizz we talked to about how they're getting more three-pointers up anything else that you want to talk about from this Pacers game yeah a couple of things so I will acknowledge that Spurs Mavs was my primary focus not Grizz Pacers but it was on my second TV I paid attention to it and it was a weird kind of knife twist that for most of the I mean both teams in this one and you can think about you know both of these teams remember Miles Turner was is unavailable for the Pacers right now they're both at they're both bad defensive rebounding teams and Memphis absolutely crushed Indiana in that respect Memphis had a 40% offensive rebound rate in this game um they had 24 offensive rebounds including 12 just by Valanchunas um he had 34 and 22 in this game yeah Um, 25 field goal attempts for him which is a a pretty insane number for well it it helps when you grab 12 offensive rebounds and and there was a point when the the Pacers just couldn't guard Valanchunas he had 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 a couple of really nice really nice stretches for them but so yeah I brought up that you know Memphis is dominating on the on their offensive glass however it was defensive rebounding failures that I think really swung the game so there were a few plays down the stretch where I thought Memphis's first shot defense was actually pretty good I thought that they had a uh, one where they forced a Justin Holiday miss and then uh, there was a possession where the Pacers really got nothing but Sabonis Sabonis took a three and in both of those circumstances the Pacers got an offensive rebound in one case they got two um because Holiday had a tip dunk and then and then that gave them the buffer and Memphis wasn't scoring quite enough so the uh this on the Sabonis one I thought that was the most important play probably he missed a three uh, and then McConnell grabs the offensive rebound gets it to Levert and that pushes the margin from one to three and John Morant tried to create he fell down on the drive and the game was basically over um something I did really like from Taylor Jenkins is that Grayson Allen is still starting for them but he opted to go with Desmond Bain to close and this this game was not the best performance by Bain he missed some open shots missed some twos but I think he's a better defender and I trust him more in those circumstances now whether that ends up being you know is Melton the right fit for that but I think you want somebody who's a more reliable shooter there and uh but I thought it was it's good by Jenkins to play your best player in those clutch minutes even if you know Grayson Allen was a higher draft pick albeit not by the Grizzlies originally yeah and Allen really got cooked by Karis LeVert in this game they didn't really have any answers for him well yeah and that's that was a bunker stat that fast break breakfast had that LeVert is averaging 15.6 points a game on and 59 uh, sorry 39 percent field goals against everybody that isn't the Grizzlies but in three games against the Grizzlies he's averaging 35 points on 57 percent field goals which is just completely ridiculous LeVert dropped 34 on 20, 14 to 20 from the field in this one. I thought he played very well overall. And I thought Brogdon had some really nice moments too. Um, the, you know, the, the the Grizzlies rim protection wasn't exactly great. And Brogdon also hit some threes. So I think that the, the Grizzlies are actually in a pretty good space overall. You know, they've kind of moved ahead of the pack a little bit in the, in the Western Conference, which I think they, they need to do. They have a you know, an easier but not a super easy schedule the rest of the way. Like we mentioned before, they have a lot of games to play, so it's more more games against easier opponents. We'll see how that works out. Generally speaking, that is a good thing because you want to play bad teams late. Like, for example, they have two games against the Kings in the last week of the season. Maybe Sacramento's not pushing super hard at that point. We'll have to see. Um, But yeah, so I think Memphis is pretty well situated to get into the play-in. But the other kind of big picture thing, the offense has looked a lot better over the last couple weeks. And we don't need to game all this out, but it's like, you know, how will they fare if if the play-in is what they're doing, then how are they going to do in that? But we'll have to see. 
So Valanciunas, I mentioned that the that he had that ridiculous number of shot attempts, twenty five. I would guess that's probably a career high for him. Six of those were on post ups. 11 of his shot attempts came off of offensive rebounds in this game so he had 12 offensive rebounds and 11 of them led directly to his own shot attempts that that's pretty ridiculous uh so yeah i think that that uh that was a contract that seemed a little bit rich at the time but i think it's working out pretty well for the grizz and we we're kind of like you know he's kind of this this big center who just uh, how good can your defense really be but they've been offensively challenged but he allows them to knock some heads and he's really a, a wonderful offensive center well since you know anytime you say the word this might be a career high you you force me to look it up on basketball reference and the answer is no this is not oh. valentunas's career high in field goal attempts in a game against the suns in march of 2019 he went 16 of 28 from the field dropped 34 and 20 in that game yeah i guess that was right after he got traded to a tanking grizz team and so there wasn't yeah he actually had 20 he had 25 field goal attempts in the game before that and then had 28 against the suns oh valanchunas um, all right who's up can, next here so next so the spurs are the team after the grizzlies um so so now we're moving to the current 10 seed in the western conference and that is the golden state warriors the warriors are 25 and 28 three and four since last 1560 negative 2.8 net rating is 22nd in the league they're 23rd in offense ninth in defense um, 538 projects them to be the nine, actually the nine seed with 35 wins. But remember, and these are playoff odds are to make the best of seven. So the final eight teams, a uh, Raptor gives the Warriors a 32% chance and Elo gives them a 17% chance. Tough injury news for them on Sunday uh, that James Wiseman has a torn meniscus in his right knee and he could miss the rest of the season. I mean, if it is actually torn, it feels uh, like he uh, will. I, I mean, he better. Yeah. D- d- they're going to rush a, a 19, or I guess he's 20 now, center. I mean, if, 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 to... Wiseman, if Wiseman makes it back from a meniscus injury before Jaron Jackson Jr. Um, anyway. well, well, here's the thing. Like, uh, I we've talked about this a million times. He's, and I mean, maybe they're like, it's a small enough tear that he doesn't need surgery that's never great either remember with porzingis it was they thought oh, it's a small tear he doesn't need surgery turns out he did and he wasted a month of, of which ended up being a month of the season before getting his surgery but i think it's first of all it's probably far more important that he's available for summer league than the rest of the season <laughs> uh and he doesn't really help them actually win basketball games right now they're probably better off just playing draymond green at center more and looney and maybe maybe they'll try and sign a big now because uh, hilariously they always seem to have so many centers and now that now they don't have any more but they they have a open roster spot Juan Toscano Anderson will probably play more now too he's he probably actually helps you win games more than Wiseman but moreover uh, what do we have until the playoffs we got five weeks maybe five five or six weeks so even if it's the usual six to eight week timetable you're gonna rush him back and immediately throw him into either a playoff race or the play-in game when he's gonna hurt you and you're potentially risking his health because he's not fully rehabbed uh, no he's done for the year he has to be i agree and we'll probably get a clearer timetable over the next couple days um the, and it is 
it, it is a complicated circumstance. Now, Wiseman, you know, he's ha- had some had some better performances or at least some better sections of performances like the beginning part of that game against the Hawks about a week ago. Uh, and so for his purposes, you know, having to spend time not being able to do a lot of the work that, that is necessary, not being able to get that in-game experience. But as you, as you were getting to, I mean, even with a shorthanded center rotation, Wiseman was, you know, he, due to his limitations, which are not his fault, not anything that is unsurprising when you consider young dudes playing in the NBA, especially young dudes who didn't really play in college and everything else, is Wiseman made life more difficult. You know, like he, he, his defensive limitations came to the fore at various moments in time. And offensively, you know, he ran into some of those problems where if you don't run in action with Draymond Green, then the other team's not going to guard Draymond Green. And so they were doing a little bit more of pick and rolls involving Wiseman, but there was still some stuff there. So in terms of like, you know, if, if I were, let's say modeling, I would say that Wiseman's injury increases the Warriors' chances of making the playoffs um, just because now they, they will go to other things. Now, maybe the cascade of injuries changes that dynamic at some point, but probably not right now. And it is unfortunate to get, you know, that you don't get this time, especially if it looked like Wiseman was, was playing a little bit better. But as you said, like being back for summer league, you know, getting get, getting something closer to a full offseason, if this is kind of the quote unquote normal timeline, then he'll probably have something fairly close to a normal offseason. And that is exceedingly important for him and for the Warriors moving forward. Well, Slater wrote about this uh, a little bit a couple of weeks ago, and it, it's something that's occurred to me as well. It's getting late early for James Wiseman with the Golden State Warriors because there are really kind of three scenarios for what they're going to do with Wiseman transactionally. One is they trade him in the offseason in a package for a star. I guess the, I guess you could say that there's a sub-scenario to that too, which is maybe you trade him just for a good player who can start for you who's a veteran next year. Um, I, I don't think they would consider that. I think they still would be intrigued by his upside. I would actually probably consider moving him for a player that I would consider like a very solid starter. Um, you know, again, you're kind of, you're doing that before you see what Clay Thompson is, which is, that's, that's a reason maybe to be more conservative because if Clay is not Clay, then it doesn't matter what the hell you do unless you trade for another star next year. Then like, they're not going to, they're not going to get a chance to see him again, uh, in game action. Summer league will be probably at the point already where the decision will have to be made. So then scenario two is you just bring him in, have him come into next year as your starting center, which if you're trying to win and he isn't any better, which maybe he's not, especially after just yet more time i'm on the shelf that's a risk to go into next season with him as a starting center now you can always try to make a trade or acquire one uh, as or, well or bring later. in you know try to get a try to get an overqualified guy maybe for the minimum or something that could be an option yeah but but then you're also kind of if you get to that point where james wiseman can't even like start and contribute for you in his second season i know a lot of people are like oh big men they take large about that's not true big men are actually because their game is really more physical than any other position yes he's got to learn the coverages and all that shit but he can big men generally can contribute earlier than at other positions i mean unless you're talking about just a true superstar uh at one of the other positions or you bring in another good player to start over james wiseman then but then it's like are you just gonna kind of you're still waiting for him to develop more and his trade value continues to plummet i mean there's really i don't know that he has much value in a package for a star at this point if they they don't get that minnesota pick this year maybe it rolls over to next year it has some value as well but this 
the big hope was that Wiseman was going to keep playing, finally get some rhythm, and either establish some trade value or establish himself as a legitimate option to start for them at center last year, next year when they're trying to get back in a contention. And you're not, neither of those scenarios really is going to play out before they have to make decisions starting on August 1st or whenever free agency starts exactly. Um, anything else we should talk about with these guys? Just a couple of quick things. Um, sort in a, in a way, as we would have, ex- as we anticipated before the start of the season the Warriors have a 24 and 21 record when Stephen Curry plays and a one in seven record when he sits and we talked about the dividing line for the Warriors being whether Curry was available that's largely held and then uh Steph Curry still pretty fucking good by the way uh if you've been watching him recently even playing with this this tailbone they had that terrible loss to the Wizards on Friday where they're up three and Andrew Wiggins fouls Bradley Beal shooting a three-pointer off an offensive rebound and then they don't get a shot off at, at the end um but they they took care of business against houston the next game really due to curry again having a really good one and and jordan Poole playing better one interesting thing with kelly Oubre being out is with a sore left wrist again due to a dunk attempt second time he's hurt his left wrist uh, as a result of a dunk attempt so far this year but that he's not be out that long is we're finally seeing steph curry and jordan Poole together and that i think is gonna really start unlocking this offense a little bit but we only really saw that against houston so that's not a not a great defensive team um sorry you're gonna say anything else there for for these guys the curry just just one other quick stat um i I pulled the I because I, we've we've talked about how like kind of the the dependence of Draymond Green offensively on Stephen Curry. Um, so when when Draymond is on the floor with Curry, he has a fifty percent true shooting on thirteen usage. And when Draymond is playing without Curry, that fifty percent true shooting drops to thirty six percent, and his usage drops to ten percent, which is insanely low um impressively like the the defense actually stays pretty similar um and when you think about you could be like oh they have better personnel but they're also getting the other teams getting more live ball rebounds because the offense is so abysmal in those minutes but for draymond you know the idea that even if all we're measuring is his individual scoring efficiency which is far from the only factor there it is dramatic the other news from the Warriors is they're going to have 35% capacity pretty shortly, which I think is going to be about the largest in the league. And they're actually going to test every single fan that comes in within the, the 48 hours beforehand. So kudos to them for that regime. Or I think if you're fully vaccinated as well, then you, then you don't have to get the test. The next, the current 11 seed in the Western Conference is the New Orleans Pelicans. The Pelicans are 24 and 29, 4 and 4 since the last 1560. Slightly below water, net rating negative 0.9. Eighth in offense, 28th in defense. Um, the 530 projects them to finish with 33 wins, which would be 10th. And the odds of making it into the best of seven, about 25, 20 to 25% on both models. Uh, on the injury front, Lonzo Ball returned, but has now missed another two games due to this left hip flexor. And then Josh Hart and Nikhil Alexander-Walker still out. Hart had UCL surgery and Nikhil, Alexander, uh, Nikhil had the high ankle sprain. And So probably going to be a while, it, it seems like, seems for those like three it. guys to get back. Right, and so that that means that there's more minutes for a pretty uh, a more shallow guard rotation than obviously they they intended to have at other points in the year. Eric Bledsoe's played a bunch and um, a few other guys, and I know that there will be people who think of it as like it's a, it's all a line drive in the box score. But like I, I watched a fair portion of their game against the Cavs, and I was mostly dumbfounded because the Pels had such a ridiculous talent advantage because they're playing the Cavs and then the Cavs have had some feistier games recently but Cleveland was without Sexton, Garland, Larry Nance Jr. and Jared Allen 
and were still in the game to the very end. And, you know, some guys stepped up. They played hard. You know, the, this team has competed defensively. Also, New Orleans missed a ton of threes. But, I mean, they have no one to guard Zion Williamson. Ingram had some chances to get off to. And it still was like a knockdown drag out to get, to get a win over a, a weak opponent that was also just severely weakened. Well, and some of the lineups that were being thrown out in this game were completely insane. The Cavs started one guard basically del del vadova okoro at the three dean wade usually a power forward was at the three uh kevin love and hartenstein hartenstein yes hartenstein uh and they had no guards available off their bench and the pels they were having lineups out there with james johnson at the two basically zion at the one which we'll talk about a little bit more and willie hernan gomez (laughs) and jackson hayes all on the floor at the same time i mean that was pretty intense Kyra Lewis did actually play that. They did have Bledsoe and Lewis uh, available. Well, and and Najee Marshall really stepped up. Yeah, he's actually uh, been getting some tick for them lately. So, but Zion, another completely ridiculous game. Again, 38 points, 16 of 22. I mean, seriously, like the guy, him shooting 75% from the field. It's just, you don't even bat an eye at it anymore. And an incredibly impressive game that he had a couple days ago was against Philly. And Andrew Lopez had this stat that he basically was the point guard. They decided to throw him out there. Zion's quote was, it just feels natural to me. And he brought the ball up 35 times this season. The previous most that he'd had was 25. And he brought it up 12 times in the fourth quarter. And they beat the Sixers, who were pretty much whole with ball out and all the injuries you talked about. The Sixers have ostensible defensive player of the year candidate in Doc Rivers' mind, Ben Simmons. One of the better perimeter defenders, but not a real defense player of the year candidate by any reasonable metric. But Ben Simmons could not do anything with Zion Williamson. They tried Tobias Harris on him. They didn't really try and beat on him at all, which because I think part of part of that was just because the Pels had so many other bigs that they felt like, and Zion was just was playing basically a point guard. But like Zion, the thing that I think is lost about him the big body is huge obviously his explosive finishing at the room his touch is awesome everyone was uh all a titter about uh, a sweet baseline pull-up jumper that he had late in the game that he said he was working on with his assistant coach Teresa witherspoon and but he's just shot out of a cannon whenever he decides to attack whether it's out of pick and roll like this guy is 285 splitting the pick and roll blowing by guys he's faster than ben simmons like ben simmons could not keep up with him when he decided to put the hammer down and drive by him and bead would try to get out on the floor against him he would just blow right by him as well and so 35 points 15 rebounds eight assists he's starting to set up three-point shooters they didn't have a lot of three-point shooters but he was setting guys up for that Bledsoe had a couple of spot ups off of that and I just I, I know we talk about Zion every time with the Pels but I'm really glad number one that Stan Van Gunny has decided that no Zion is the number one guy we're not messing around with Brandon Ingram at the end of games or anything like that he's still involved obviously but he's not he's not going to be the main guy anymore and like just just watching him I think we I compared him Charles Barkley was probably the best comparison that I had like he is on another level as a physical specimen than Barkley in terms of just his speed and change of direction and ball handling and Barkley is maybe a little bit better of a shooter definitely a better rebounder Barkley was but and this is we're talking about a much more athletic NBA than the one that Charles Barkley was in and Zion to me has more of an an athletic advantage over his competition now 30 years later than Barkley did when he was dominating for the Sixers and the Suns in the late 80s early 90s. 
One other stat for for Zion. Um, Before the All-Star break, 65% true shooting on 29% usage. Completely ridiculous. Post-All-Star break, 67% true shooting on 32.5% usage. And assist rate is up, um, you know, a bunch of other things. Like, this is... Yes, there are limitations, and we've talked about that. But his his offensive dominance, is, like in this in this stretch, is is truly insane. And well, and, I mean, and major credit to uh, David Griffin came under some fire from JJ Redick last week, but for him getting Aaron Nelson to come over from the Suns, and you wondered what was going on with Zion. We kept hearing, oh, they they're trying to change the way he runs and all this. He had that meniscus injury early, and then he looked terrible in the bubble. And they've gotten him to where he's able to do this and he's able to do this, you know, to bring the ball up 35 times a game and have that level of fitness. And he hasn't even sniffed an injury so far this year. Now, I still have concerns about how long he's going to be able to last. And I do think he's going to be kind of an earlier peak player and you know we'll keep we knock on wood you know every time we we talk about him for that reason but i mean this is what he's doing is just absolutely unprecedented and i think maybe defensively still you might say he's a little bit of a disappointment but what he's done in the last two and a half months is has exceeded my expectations for him when he came out of duke and those expectations were sky high to begin with no arguments here and remember zion hasn't even turned 21 yet that's going to happen in july um we can move on to the current 12 seed in in the western conference and that is the you could argue now deposed sacramento kings um the kings are 22 and 31 but an exceedingly disappointing one and six since the last 15 and 16 uh, yeah i mean I, i'm not really that disappointed i was kind of expecting that it was gonna hey as the person who has their over i'm disappointed um I, but well they're, I, they're gonna hit that aren't they i know 27 27 and a half i think it, yeah i think it is 27 so they're, they're probably yeah. okay um now, now will they uh hit an expected wins of 27 that that is, the, <laughs> is an interesting question <laughs> Um, the Kings negative 4.6 net rating is 24th in the league 12th in offense dead last in defense 538 projects them to win 30 games which is 12th and they are not going to make the playoffs and yeah it, it has been a challenging stretch for Sacramento they've a couple of those games have been close like that um that that weird game that they played against the Bucks um yeah without with no Giannis, Giannis. With yeah, no Giannis, where, where it was where it was close, and um, but Drew had a big game, and I think Fox played Fox played well. Um, but I mean, it also has been useful to kind of, in a sense, like give up the ghost that they weren't they they shouldn't have been going hard for the play, and they weren't. I don't think they were good enough, and you know, losing to the Spurs in this stretch, losing to the Wolves. Yeah, and and some of these losses were awful, right? I mean, they they were had gotten to twenty two and twenty five, and they lost by fourteen to the Spurs, who've been terrible. They lost at home to the Lakers with none of their guys by twenty one. They lost by twenty two points combined to the Pistons and the Wolves. And then they probably played their best game of this stretch against the Jazz, but ended up losing by 16 after being tied with like three minutes left in the game. Yeah. So, I, I mean, the, mo- the most important thing for them is kind of the development of the young players. And we'll, we'll talk more about that in, in future iterations of 1560s and, and, and various other things. But there is, first of all, there's some utility in terms of just losing some games and getting to better lottery odds. Like, I think there is real value in that for Sacramento. Like, they, their lack of salary flexibility over the years has been a big concern for me. And so, you know, may, we're, there's no guarantee that they're going to, like, jump into the top four of the draft or anything like that. But losing a little bit there, and they're getting opportunities for Tyrese Halliburton to play with the starters, which I think is is a good thing overall, even if, you know, there will be some days where that is a challenge. 
Yeah, I, I liked what I saw from Tyrese in that Jazz game, and we talked about him as generally being a lower upside guy, but also noted that maybe the way that that upside could increase was him really leaning into his shooting and now he's starting to take step backs off the dribble shooting a little bit coming off of screens he's able to use his size to get that shot off he doesn't get off the ground at all but he's able to have a very quick release somewhat Steph Curry like in that way no one will ever I think have as quick release as Steph Curry off the dribble but Halliburton's is pretty quick because he doesn't need to load up and jump he just gets a shot if he's got a little more size than Curry as well uh throws some great full court passes also definitely struggling to defend at the threes really skinny to try and do that or they'll have to put buddy healed there with their starters also they did debut uh, i shouldn't say debut but they a lineup that did pretty well against the jazz by switching everything to get them back into things was harkless at center and when rashawn holmes uh, had some foul trouble then they went back to holmes at the end and that's when the jazz started to pull away and then they went back to harkless but it, it was too late by that point in time they've also had a couple of just ridiculous dunks lately darren fox coming down the lane against the jazz and then maybe the dunk of the year for me is mo harkless against the pistons where they they had another great highlight too when uh, darren fox put uh dennis smith jr on his ass darren fox seems to really uh save his ire for other point guards in that 2017 class but he put it he put him on his ass with an acceleration move and then harkless driving down from the left side of the floor right hand off the right leg on isaiah stewart right through his chest it was a i mean it probably not better than the anthony edwards on watanabe but it was close it was really really nasty uh because it was just so unexpected as well he went up you're like where is he going and then all of a sudden he just cocked it back and just dunked on him it was ridiculous so the kings at least have have been exciting bad uh, of late um what else could we say about these guys well it's interesting to me that they're they kind of tried that new balance with harkless at the four and the person that they pulled from the starting lineup was halliburton but halliburton you know he still played 33 minutes in the game against the jazz like he's even even in some of those lower lower minute games he's still playing or lower not non-starting games still playing plenty which is the more important thing i think the starter label can be can be a little bit overstated at times oh and that's one other little thing i, I was looking at halliburton's splits and he has been about equally efficient in games that he has started and games that he's come off the bench. Now it is worth noting that his role doesn't necessarily change. You know, like it's just he, he kind of because he was playing a lot with starting guys and he was closing games at times anyway. But I, I do think that's kind of nice because one of the differences with Halliburton when he starts nominally is that he is playing a higher proportion of his minutes against starting caliber players. And so round 59% true shooting, about the same usage either way. New acquisition Terrence Davis played eight games. 54% true shooting, about 20% usage, taking a ton of shots from three. He had attacked the rim more. He had a reputation as a shooter, but attacked the rim more last year during his heyday in Toronto and has had some really bad games lately in terms of the plus minus. He is negative uh, 9.7 net rating, but that's better than Glenn Robinson the third, who he replaced, who had a negative 16.1 net rating. And that'll do it here for the Kings. Who's next? The Oklahoma City Thunder. The Thunder are 20 and 33 and 1 and 7 since last 1560 they have who are they they have dropped all the way to last in net rating more on that very soon um they're dead last in offense and 21st in defense 538 projects that they will win 25 games which is 13th in the western conference they aren't making the playoffs um 
On the injury front, uh, Darius Baisley returned on Saturday, played 36 minutes against Philly. He hadn't played since March 4th, so more in the month. Alou Dort returned as well. He missed two weeks uh, with a concussion. Isaiah Roby is still in the concussion protocol. Shea Gilgis-Alexander will be reevaluated in mid-April. Remember that he's dealing with plantar fasciitis in his right foot. And uh, Pokashevsky hurt his right arm on Saturday and didn't return, but last time I saw, we didn't really have any new information on when, on if Poku's going to be out time and all that. But this, to they, me... They got to get him back in there quick. They do. Um, this, to me, is a truly mind-blowing, mind-blowing stat. Shea Gilgis-Alexander's last game was March 22nd, so not that long ago. Since then, the Thunder are 1-9. Their only win was against the Raptors. And they're cleaning the glass, which filters out garbage time. Net rating is negative 20.2. Yeah, that's, uh, that is pretty bad. Uh, and uh, not as, as bad as that rocket stretch, where I think they had like a negative 18 net rating for an entire month. But it's pretty rough, and they are now not being competitive in some of these games. That even to bad teams, they are they are getting worked. Uh, what have you seen from Poku of late? Since uh, hopefully we'll get to see him again soon. But he, I know you did a little film work on him. Oh yeah, it was it was more stats than film work. But um, Poku, so he's been starting since he got back from the gobble. And worth noting, this is his age nineteen season. Still a super young, super raw guy, averaging thirteen points, six rebounds, and three assists in thirty one minutes as a 31 minutes per game as a starter. I excluded the Philly game because he got so hurt so early. Um, as a starter, Poku, 49% true shooting on 21 usage, which, you know, it's below average, but it's not horrendous. But when you consider that before the gobble, 30% true shooting on 17 usage, he was the most destructive player probably in the league. Um, making 36% of his threes on 6.1 per game, that's just in the starter time. Still not getting to the line, not a huge surprise from Poku there. And I went a little bit into synergy. I didn't want to watch. I didn't want to watch film. I'm going to do that at another point. Um, but they're having him run pick and roll. And I mean, when I watch the Thunder, it's something you think about. You just like watch them. Sometimes he makes these really interesting and kind of like good passes. But he is almost jaw droppingly inefficient as a pick and roll scorer. Um, 0.545 points per possession as a scorer in pick and roll. Well, well um, so he has he has scored though. That 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 was going to be my question of whether he actually had scored it. And again, this, this is I, I know we joke about it. Him a little bit it's not even that he's a bad prospect it's more just about like the thunder clearly having a certain <laughs> Maxim- agenda as far as maximum like po- maximum poku yeah i think that's yeah. fair um and the numbers look better when you add in passing uh as i did kind of like a rough back of the envelope i think that teammates are shooting about you know 55 15 55 60 on shots that he passes out of a pick and roll but then the, the individual scoring is, is terrible um and Poku's turning it over part of what hurts those numbers. He's turning it over on 23% of his pick and roll possessions, which is not great. Um, another interesting piece of business, though, for the Thunder, I wondered when they were going to move on from Darius Miller. He was salary filler the entire season. Um, and what they what Sam Presti did was he waived Miller and then did so to open up a roster spot for Gabriel Deck. Deck is somebody that has briefly been on our radar before. He uh, was on the international team at the 2013 Hoop Summit, which was the Towns and Bede Wiggins Hoop Summit. Um, but he only got three minutes in the actual game, so he's in the practice and stuff. He's a 26-year-old Argentinian listed at 6 Six two thirty one. Deck actually won Argentinian League MVP in 2018 and won their league finals MVP that year before joining Real Madrid. Played Started and played 24 minutes for Madrid this year, uh, 37% on threes, but only took two per game. 63, 63% true shooting this year. Uh, and then the other way that some people might know Deck is that he was the leading scorer in the 2019 FIBA World Cup gold medal game, which Argentina lost to Spain. He had 24 points in that one. So I 
he also, a uh, deck in true Presty fashion, it sounds like he signed a three-year deal. I would guess very light guarantees, if any, beyond this season. So we'll, we'll have to see for sure, but also enough to get him over from Real Madrid, where I believe they were still playing, and he just basically jumped over to play for the Thunder. Yeah, maybe he had a, an NBA out clause. It's interesting that he's listed at only 6'6" because uh, my understanding is he really plays a, as more of a big man and so that that'll be he, he has some shooting ability he has some touch i was kind of thinking of him as a maybe a shorter willie hernan gomez type but perhaps his game has evolved to i mean i saw him some in the world cup but i should probably just wait to actually see him we'll, we'll talk more about him i'm sure uh would you care to guess hopefully you're not looking at it right now who leads the oklahoma city thunder in minutes played this season maladon Teo Maladon is Woo! 100% correct. He has uh, 1,287 minutes. That's 55 more than Lou Dort. And he is fulfilling his mission with a negative 15.1 net rating. And uh, Moses Braun, for all his brilliance, negative 17.8 net rating. And Poku, negative 17.7. And those will probably be your three biggest stalwarts for this team. Oh, uh, Svi Mikhailuk, negative 20.4 <laughs> net rating for, for these guys as well. They got they got to keep Tony bradley out of the lineup though he's got a negative 13.9 net rating really pushing him, him up too far uh let's All jump right. to the let's jump to the rockets uh houston rockets 14 and 39 uh one and seven since the last 1560 26th in net rating negative 6.9 27th in offense 26th in defense remember when they were like top 10 in defense um granted a lot of things have gone wrong 538 actually still projects that they will finish worst in the west with 19 wins they're not making the playoffs and hilariously the rockets have gone one in seven since the last 1560 but they've actually moved up a spot in terms of team rankings and net rating because the okc thunder fell so hard that they fell past them which is genuinely impressive um sterling brown had to leave saturday's game due to a sore right knee uh no timetable or diagnosis as of the last time i looked the rockets still have the hardest remaining schedule in the nba uh at a 58% winning percentage for their opponents the rest of the year. That So, I mean, that is tough if your goal is to win games, and we'll see if that actually is. Um, Christian Wood's been back just a little bit less than a month uh, since then. You know, so there was this idea, and they were snake bit, and there's continue to be, you know, Eric Gordon's on the, on the on the outs. John Wall's missed some time. But since Christian Wood returned, Rockets are 3-12 and 12 with the league's third worst net rating. Um, and so looks like they're going to stick around the bottom which I actually think is a really good thing for them, kind of when you think about it, but it is, I'm sure it's painful for them. Yeah, and so some of these newcomers, uh, they've really struggled with those guys on the floor. DJ Augustin had a nice stretch against the Warriors where he got them back into the game by going one-on-one a lot with the, some pretty good spacing. The Rockets are playing some more offensively focused groups. John Wall uh, has been back. He killed the Mavs. I think he had 31 points in that game the, the game that they won recently dj wilson got a look at him uh against the warriors on saturday and he's playing mostly as a center but he's kind of being asked to bang on the interior where he just doesn't really have the strength or explosion to finish remember the theory behind dj wilson was that he's gonna be able to hit shots and then switch at the power forward position but really the power aspect of his game using his size has never really evolved and with the rockets really as a center he just can't really hold up on the interior even against some smaller units like the warriors were throwing out there and christian wood he was pretty vocal about not getting the ball enough first he started with complaining about ball movement and then it, it moved up to well i i actually ball movement there, to him. there 
no then it was like they're not calling plays for me i think was the was the next one and you know kelly olenek has given them some decent minutes uh, at times that steven silas called him their best communicator but he, he still hasn't really done a ton for them he's played some with wood also and the biggest bright spot uh, for these guys though has been uh jay sean tate absolutely and uh this is tate's age 25 season starting most of the time playing 29 minutes a game averaging 11 points five and a half rebounds a little over steel a little over half a block a game um and impressively tate 59 percent true shooting despite only making 31 percent of his threes because tate is making 61 percent of his twos and 73 percent of his shots in the restricted area um and that also 48 percent from floater range and not surprised he's i, I think there's going to be some regression from floater range but in true mori ball fashion jason tate does not take mid-rangers and while basically all of tate's threes are assisted about 40 percent of his twos are unassisted i looked into just a little bit of synergy and there aren't really any creation centric play types for him i think it's just kind of upper you know kind of the opportunities that come in mostly spot up transition and cuts um but it is interesting tate 52 possessions as a pick and roll roll man and 1.3 points per possession which is really good um and his bread is buttered on the defensive end and i mean you and i've both been impressed by tate we'll do more on that at a later time but one little defensive playmaking benchmark that we've used for a long time is two percent steal rate two percent block rate and tate is just under both of those which is pretty impressive yeah and the surprise to me is just that how athletic he's been i mean he really can stay in front of most nba players on switches he's had some big dunks this year as well and we'll see if the nba3 can come along for him a a little bit more than it has but he has a a long time in his career to make that he clearly is an nba player great job getting him and and getting him on that contract i mean so unfortunately for tate i he's on a on an really unfavorable contract i mean two more minimum seasons that aren't guaranteed though technically the third is a team option but since tate you know he's already this is age 25 season he'll be a restricted free agent at 27 and it, it's possible that tate will you know play well enough that the market will be strong but i mean bogdanovich got reasonably paid but they're different players and everything else so but i'm still thrilled for him that he's making it in the nba and he chose to sign that contract so that's the way things work yeah. out well, sometimes. well it's not it's not like uh i think he has the same agent as glenn robinson the third who's <laughs> not been uh t- done a great job for him either but uh, i think he it's not like he had other people beaten down his door. We'll put it that way uh, for to, to have leverage. And that's why it's it's so useful to identify these guys. It is interesting to me, though, that he really seems to have much more use on a winning team than where I expect the Rockets to be these next couple of years. And so I'm sure the Rockets will go in at least pretending to compete for next year. But maybe, especially considering his age, if you are a contender, it might make sense to, to give up a, a pick for him. And whether that's, you know, would that be be late first round value i guess we'll see where he's at as a player at that point in time but uh, maybe that's a maybe that would be a, a possibility let's uh finish up with the minnesota timberwolves and the wolves doing better uh since uh, d returned he's been coming off the bench at another nice game uh, against the bulls tonight uh, they are now 14 and 43 and 5 since we last checked in on them negative 7.8 net rating is 28th 25th on offense 27th on defense they project for 20 wins which be 14th in the conference they will not be making the playoffs but 
I guess we'll finish up on D'Angelo Russell. What are his stats since he came back? Yeah, so Russell, four games back, um, averaging 23 points and five assists in 26 minutes per game coming off the bench. He's had 25 or more in three of the four games, including 27 points in 26 minutes in their win on Sunday over the Chicago Bulls. And a potentially important development, we'll see if it continues. Russell's getting to the line six times a game since he since he returned, which is which worth watching moving forward. And remember this, you know, this is his opportunity to play with Chris Finch and Dan and, and Carl Anthony Towns. And the Wolves are two and two in those games. So we'll keep an eye on it. Um, But the other big news is off the court in Minneapolis. Alex Rodriguez and Mark Lore are going to be 50-50 partners. They are, according to Woj, finalizing a deal to purchase the Wolves and the Lynx from Glenn Taylor. The purchase price is expected to be in the $1.5 billion range. And the arrangement is to be, well, they have now entered a 30-day exclusive negotiating, which the Glenn Taylor did back in the summer of 2020 as well, and they were not able to reach a deal. I can't remember which was that uh i think that was daniel strauss Strauss. yeah i can never remember whether it's strauss or kaplan because they're both uh, involved in memphis yeah they they couldn't reach a deal then this seems like though because taylor is supposed to retain full control for two years before rodriguez and data i mean lore uh take over in 2023 and what do you think of that pricing if it does end up being 1.5 billion that seems I mean, you don't know exactly what's included within the deal. That seems a little bit richer than I would expect it. As a point of comparison, we did have another recent sale. Ryan Smith bought the Jazz for $1.66 billion, and the Jazz are a better team right now. They don't have a lot of this baggage. You know, they, they have a lot of big contracts on their books, but they have contracts that are owed to good players, which not as, is not as true necessarily for the Timberwolves. And that poses the potential question to me, which I don't wish this on any fan base, but how 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 committed is this new ownership group to staying in the twin cities and this really depends on what is in the actual what is in the actual terms now glenn taylor got Andrew Wiggins to promise to play harder and Andrew Wiggins then Andrew Wiggins got a max extension is he going to do this on a word of mouth deal of uh, the Woj piece mentioned the Rodriguez's ties to Seattle and of course the city wants it wants a team so that is going to be to me the definitive question if this deal goes through is what is the what is the potential timeline and what protections if any are in place to keep the team where they are yeah John Krasinski spoke to Glenn Taylor he's very tied in with him obviously and Taylor said there are no plans to move the team from Minnesota recall also that Tommy Shepard had no plans to trade John Wall but yeah is that going to be codified will they have to sign a new agreement with the city because remember it's only like 50 million bucks to get out of the target center which is a a piddling amount uh, given the the sums involved here uh but krasinski noting that the two sides have already agreed on some of the major elements the 1.5 billion dollar valuation and they will spend the next month going through the finer points of the negotiation and obviously that has to be approved by the nba's board of governors which they probably would be i don't know much uh, about lore but as long as they have the money, I, th- I think they'll probably end up getting approved. But the finer points of the negotiation, this 30-day exclusive negotiating window, is this going to still be, you know, are these guys going to have any control over what Taylor does over the next two years? Taylor is proud of the group that he's put together with Ethan Kaysen and Gerson Rosas uh, and per- perhaps Chris Finch uh, as well now. So what Taylor said in this interview with John was that he's hoping that 
they'll get a chance to get a feel for the team that Taylor has in place and decide essentially whether they want to keep or not. But it seems like Taylor really hopes that. And so this whole idea of Taylor viewing this team as like a public trust and he wants to have a, a better legacy and all that. I mean, honestly, if he could get any ownership group to agree to keep the team in, in Minneapolis, then him immediately relinquishing any control of the franchise whatsoever uh, would probably be the absolute best thing that he could do. But there's this idea of, oh, they're going to learn the business from Glenn Taylor. Oh, wow. Okay. That's, uh, <laughs> that should, uh, really make, uh, Wolves fans fi- feel good about this. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting here is that this is supposed to be a 50 50 partnership between Rodriguez and Lore. And that we've seen, and I guess. There can only be one Highlander style NBA Board of Governors representative. And we've seen with the Bucks situation, it's led to some strife in their front office where they have this five-year term where it has to switch off on the basis of their ownership agreement where someone else then becomes the the, uh, the governor. And so how Rodriguez and Laura are going to handle that, supposedly they're the best of friends, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe they'll have a better working relationship than, say, Mark Lazary and... Uh, Wes Edens, for example. Anything else that, that pops out to you about this? No, I, I just want to see where, where things go from here. And you and I have both thought of Glenn Taylor as one of the weaker owners in the NBA. So you're rolling the dice again. Hopefully it'll, it'll turn out, it'll turn out better for that. But let's see where the next month goes. Oh, also. Well, well so, so I think what we have to do then, Danny, what are the fucking odds that the Minnesota Timberwolves are not owned by Alex Rodriguez and Mark Lore? So basically that's the 30 days. Okay, no, no, so, no, no. So it's I'm not saying, even about like, the 30 days. Yeah, I mean, whether the 30 days and then, you know, who knows what that agreement actually ends up being. So, I mean, I guess, well, let's let's do, let's do both. Let's do the 30 days and let's do two years from now because we, we do need some instant gratification on these Watfos, right? Okay, so I'll say 20% chance that the deal doesn't go through now, but lower it to 15% that it doesn't go through, period. Wait a minute. That doesn't make sense. You would, you would want it to be... No, so 20%, so basically that means there's this 5% opportunity that they don't agree now but they do agree later on oh they do agree later on oh that's interesting because i was thinking okay they might agree now but something goes wrong between now and two years from now (laughs) but you're you're saying they don't agree now but something goes right between now and two years from now all right I, i guess i hadn't considered that possibility um Man, I mean, it's gone wrong so many times with Glenn Taylor. Now, he did at least give like a very positive interview about this and they have agreed on a purchase price. And but I just I kind of wonder what the language is going to be in this not moving the team thing. That seems that and like keeping the same guys around and this whole two year thing. I mean, I guess I, I mean, it seems like if this actually really does happen this way, that kudos to Glenn Taylor for actually getting a pretty good valuation on a team that's in one of the worst business situations in the league and getting them to stay and getting to uh, run the team for another two years. And that that's pretty good to get all of those things if he really does. I'd, but I don't know if Glenn is really going to get all those things. And it also seems like most of the reporting on what this deal is is coming from Glenn and that when they really get down to brass tacks, maybe it won't work out. <sighs> I'm going to say a 30% chance that it doesn't happen after the 30 days. And I'll say a 30 five percent yeah yeah i guess that's true huh? you, you pointed out to me something it probably is more likely that like maybe if it doesn't happen in the 30 days that they extend it a little bit longer um should we just say like by the end of this season 
Like with that. Now nah, let's make I, it the thirty days. I, I think it still should be the thirty days. Um. So you said thirty percent in these thirty days, and then thirty-five percent in the next two years. Yeah, I, th- I think that's what I'll go for. Okay. And, and also, uh, we should mention yeah. that we will be doing uh, the Timberwolves' next game. They're playing the Brooklyn Nets on Monday for the NBA cast. That is a an 8 o'clock Eastern start, 5 o'clock Pacific, and we'll have a lot of fun. I mean, doing doing the not full-strength, but closer-to-full-strength Nets and the closer-to-full-strength T-Wolves. Yeah, I actually I think the Wolves have a pretty decent chance to win the game. But we will find out tomorrow. Talk to you all then. You all have heard me talk many times about my wife here on the show. You might recall that she's a yoga teacher, and I wanted to let you know that she is starting her own streaming service called Yoga with Ashlyn, A-I-S-L-I-N-N. That's how you spell it. And if you enjoy our meticulous, data-oriented approach here on Dunked On, either you or a significant other will find this to be the best streaming service there is for yoga. Unlike, apparently, a lot of teachers, she spends about an hour planning the sequence for each class. Why is that important? Well, it helps you get the most out of every second that you're on the mat, whether it's one of her quick 10-minute refresh classes or one of her super hardcore inversion labs. This detailed sequencing makes all the difference, whether you're looking for injury prevention, getting into that really hard pose you haven't been able to master, or just getting your mind right at the end of a really hard day. She's got over 130 classes and that library is growing at one to two classes per week. She'll even take requests from members on new classes that they like. You can search by poses, by body part if you're feeling something is tight. She's really built an impressive platform. And whether you want to get into yoga more yourself or you know someone who is really into yoga and is looking for a way to get a lot better, check out Yoga with Ashlyn. There's a free seven-day trial. You can either go to yogawithashlyn.com or there's a link to her service in the description of this podcast. That's yogawithashlyn.com, A-I-S-L-I-N-N, or just click the link in the podcast description.